Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Ladies and gentlemen, we Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Tim Benall. It's your old friend Tim Benall here coming at you with the premiere of what we are calling Benall of America, The Revival. Finally, at long last, BOA is back, baby. We're going to be coming at you with all new episodes every week, beginning with tonight's program. It's going to be really a lot of fun. We've already recorded several programs uh that you're going to be hearing over the next few weeks, and we've got a whole bunch lined up as well. And uh, I want to keep this short and sweet. So for the folks who don't follow us on social media, who are completely surprised by this uh, return of BOA, uh, I've got some cool news for you. Over the summer, we launched the Ben All of America YouTube channel, and you can find that at youtube.com slash at of America. And through the help of our good friend, the mighty Bruce Mangan, we have been migrating the classic Banal of America shows over to the YouTube channel. Bruce is a sound wizard. He's been digitally remastering these classic programs and posting them up at the BOA YouTube channel in batches uh, since middle of the summer, I'd say. So right now we're up to... We're pretty close to wrapping up season three over on the YouTube channel. So all of seasons one, two, and nearly all of season three, digitally remastered, can be found over at the Banal of America YouTube channel. Now, for the folks who are listening to this the old-fashioned way, you can keep doing it that way. You can keep getting the show via the podcast feed, but you definitely want to get over to the YouTube channel. You want to subscribe to that because when we start doing live shows as part of the Banal of America revival, they are going to be broadcast through YouTube. So get on over to the YouTube channel, subscribe, then you'll get notifications uh, when we're going to go live with uh, shows. And uh, yeah, I think I've caught you all up to speed on what's going on with Banal of America. And on that note, Let's get down to business with Drew Hurst Beeson talking about the Yuba County Five. No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules. And at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome back to Banal of America. Uh, We're back. I want to uh, welcome our guest, Drew Hurst Beeson. He's the author of several different interesting and fascinating books. And uh, before I sort of bring... Uh, Drew into the show. I, I, I should mention here. I was just telling Drew that we're we're running a whole new fucking operation here, folks. Uh, the old days of me stomping around my office with the cordless phone at my ear through blog talk. Those days are over. Uh, we're running all this through Streamyard, and we we got real microphones, and um, it's a, a, a quasi professional operation at last. Um, so I'm a little out of my element, and I really appreciate that Drew's come on as as sort of the first uh, guest here in this new era of Banal of America. I really do appreciate it uh, quite a bit. And the reason why 
Drew was at the top of my list for uh, guests here for the Banal of America revival is that last year at the Strange Realities Conference, uh, many folks, some folks may recall, that I did a presentation on the Yuba County Five and leaned heavily on his book, Out of Bounds, What Happened to the Yuba County Five. And so he was so gracious with his time and so generous uh, with his insights when I spoke to him last autumn that, you know, all over the course of the year, I've had a sort of scratch pad of guests I wanted to get on but all of America if we ever brought the show back. And so once it came time to start scheduling guests, uh, Drew was at the top of the list. And like I said, he's been kind enough to come on here and, he, and put up with my fucking hijinks here as I'm trying to <laughs> figure out. It's very, I, I, people can't, they're not going to, they're only going to hear the podcast. They're not going to see us. They're not going to see our faces. It's very odd for me to be like stuck in my chair this whole time. So it's, uh, it'll take some getting used to, but um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting into some real uh, interesting and deep conversations starting tonight here with Drew. As I said, he's the author of Out of Bounds, What Happened to the Yuba County Five, which I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Drew, this is the, uh, this, this is the only book out, uh, the only book solely about the Yuba County Five. Yeah, there's another one that's not real popular. That it's I can't even remember what they call it. It's not they don't have Yuba County Five in the title, so it didn't do too well. But uh, I have a friend named Tony Doug Wright that's going to be coming out with a really comprehensive book on the Yuba County Five called uh, Something's Not Right, and which is kind of a tie to his name, which is right. But uh, it's going to be oh, a really, funny. really like years in the making kind of book. So we're all kind of excited about this book coming out by uh, Tony Doug Wright. So that'll be like the re- the second. Uh, book on Yuba County Five. Excellent, excellent. And uh, I, I would be remiss without mentioning, uh, you're also the author of Sighting In on the Zodiac Killer, Unmasking America's Most Puzzling Unsolved Murders. And for folks who watched the recent Peacock series on the Zodiac Killer, you may recognize Drew. He was uh, featured in that. And he's also the author of Paratrooper of Fortune, the story of Ted B. Braden, Vietnam commando, CIA, CIA operative, Congo mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper. And what I like about Drew is that he's kind of he's he's sort of honing in on these real classic mysteries um, and trying to unearth some new insights into these stories. And as I said uh, tonight, we're going to look at the Yuba County Five because that's kind of like uh, it's. I, I wouldn't call it my wheelhouse. I, I really crammed like crazy uh, to do the presentation. Um, and, and sort of refreshed my notes tonight, and and so, but Drew knows this thing backwards and forwards. This case, and and um, it's really a fascinating case. But before we get into the Yuba County Five, let's start off with the bio, the background. Who is Drew Hurst Beeson? How'd you get mixed up in all this? How'd you decide to, uh, you know, because I I've, I've talked to a lot of people over the years on this show. It's sort of a an interesting uh, question in a sense, where it's like. Lots of people are listening to this show right now. Lots of people are fans of this stuff, uh, but very few sort of take the leap and be like, okay, now I'm going to start producing stuff. Now I'm going to start writing things or doing a podcast or, or sort of dip my toe into being uh, a creator, if you will. So what made you, what, 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 you know, where did your interest in all this come from? And then what made you decide to, uh, you know, pursue it, uh, you know, writing and stuff? Well, I've always loved all the unsolved mystery type stuff, starting with the show Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Of course, going back to that, I'm 54 years old, so I was primed for that show. 
And that's the one that first exposed me to the D.B. Cooper case. I think uh, In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy actually covered it first, but I probably saw an Unsolved Mysteries episode and then found the uh, the one with Leonard Nimoy on In Search Of. But those were the first two shows that put D.B. Cooper out. So I always liked the, uh, you know, the unsolved classic mysteries, and D.B. Cooper was definitely one of them. Never thought I would write about it. And then after that, it became heavily influenced by you know, Art Bell, Coast to Coast AM, which I know you're real familiar with. Oh, yeah. uh, paranormal stuff kind of you know did the whole paranormal dive just being a fan of it all and then i kind of make the shift back to true crime with uh again db cooper i was talking you know i did it, my first podcast was on uh the cooper vortex which is an all db cooper podcast hosted by my friend darren shaper and that show was kind of taken off and i was the first person to ask him to be on that show and he was real excited that he didn't actually have to go get a guest if the guests were coming to him <laughs> And so that that podcast went really well. So after that, I was I was hooked, and I went to record uh, another podcast with a with a guy that had some podcasting equipment, a, a, a guy that became a good friend of mine, and he was really into the Zodiac case, and he just started, hey man, have you ever gotten into Zodiac? And I said, you know, a little bit, but he was like really into the Zodiac. So that kind of led from Cooper into Zodiac, which is kind of that sign, you know kind of similar time frame, similar part of the country. And, you know, the cases are different. You know, Zodiac has murders involved. D.B. Cooper just stole some money, but it had that classic mystique about it, which is what I liked. And then uh, I was watching YouTube one day and saw a video about the Yuba County Five, and I was just blown away. I was like, why have I never heard of this case? This is amazing. You know, this is has everything yeah, you want, yeah. you know, everything there. It's just one of the most bizarre cases I ever heard. They called it the American the Outlaw Pass. Of course, the case of the, the Russian hikers that were missing in 1959 in the Ural Mountains in Russia, which is really, you know, all these bizarre circumstances. So I like stuff that happened in America because I'm in America. So like, there you go. Yeah, I'm yeah. in Tim Benall's America, you know, so, there you, gonna, go. you know, <laughs> hone into this case, man. So I was hooked. I got into that and I, you know, went looking for a book on it. And there wasn't one. So I say, hey, you know, let's change that. Let me see if I can find some family members of these people. And uh, see if I can, you know, find a couple of things about it that people don't, you know, know yet from YouTube. And I was able to accomplish that with my uh, editor, Denise Shreve, and she did uh, the narratives in the book, which I thought came out great because I, I wanted that 1978 feel. And, you know, she would write the part about Forbestown and everything and just nailed it yeah. uh, just perfectly. You know how these people are up there off the grid. And, you know, she kind of grew up in a space not too unsimilar to that kind of in the mountains. So uh, she kind of had that whole vibe going for that. So that that was kind of the focus of the book is just kind of putting you in 1978 and setting up this uh, insane mystery where five grown men go missing because, you know, there's a lot of interesting missing person cases, but they're always like, you know, a, a single person going missing. This was five men who just went missing at the same time. So that's highly unusual. So uh, that's, kind of, you know, kind of one thing led to the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tremendously weird case, and it's <coughs> there we go. And it's yeah, and I I know exactly what you mean in a sense where it's. Uh, I remember when I gave the presentation of Strange Realities, a lot of people were like, uh, "I oh oh I know what you're like." It kind of you can see the light bulb kind of going off in people's heads. Um, as I was sort of doing the presentation, because like I think people are kind of vaguely aware of the Yuba County Five, but they haven't really heard much about it. And like you said, what kind of happened with me is how I discovered your book, where I was like, all right, where can I find more information about this? And luckily, by then you had written a book, but it's amazing. We're talking. Well, you, your book came out in 2020. Uh, so, but mm -hmm. but this was 78. Uh, what, what's what's the math on that? 35 years. 
Yeah. Uh, is it 40? Uh-huh. Yeah. Is it 35 40, or 45? Yeah. Yeah, 40 it's 40 years, over 40 years now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so 45 years uh, this past February would have been the was the anniversary yep. of this case. And it's amazing in a way that there really hasn't been much uh, about it until maybe the last few years, but starting with your book. And then, um, and we should also mention Yuba County 5, uh, the, the podcast that came out uh, last year. That yes. Was, uh, that was yeah, really Yeah, Pack Audio. That was, that was really well done. Yeah, that was tremendous. Um, and so I, I, I don't want to like, part of me is just like, I could just sit back here and have you just tell the whole fucking story. And, and, and believe me, some people would probably be like, good, get the fuck out of here. But we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll sort of go point by point here through this as best we can. Sort of first, let's start with, um, the players, if you will, the characters, the five characters. But of course, the, as, as we'll kind of get into, there's four characters, there's four friends, and then there's sort yeah. of an outlier friend. Right. Who, yeah, it starts together, with four, they, four guys that are all friends. They're all... Yuba County Five. So tell us about the... First, let's talk about the four guys. Yeah, you know, the four guys are all had, you know, some form of a, of a cognitive disability. Uh, you could call it, maybe call that on the spectrum. It's kind of a term you would hear now. You know, back in the day, they would might call it slightly retarded, but they were uh, all had a form of, you know, cognitive disability, you know, ranging from... One that wasn't real affected that I'll get into. The first one would be uh, a guy named Jack Madruga. He was 30 years old, and he was the probably the least affected of the four. Then you have Ted Weir. He was 32. And just to give you an idea, uh, Ted Weir was the kind of guy that, uh, he, you know, if he saw people, uh, you know, driving down the road, he would like he, – he couldn't drive, but if he was driving with somebody, he'd wave at the person. If the person didn't wave back, it would, it would hurt his feelings. You know, he was just – these were literally um, – boys and men's bodies when you're talking about these four guys. Right. So Ted, yeah. Ted's the oldest at 32. You had Bill Sterling. He was 29 years old and Bill was really quiet. He liked to uh, read religious texts to, to uh, patients at hospitals. And I think Bill actually had uh, some, some mental issues going on, which were kind of discovered later, but he was, you know, like the other four, they were just really, really sweet. And uh, Jackie Hewitt, 24 years old, Jackie's probably the most affected. He was, uh, you know, just just really slow to react. He he, he could read or he could read and write, but not very much. He couldn't make phone calls. He was scared to to even use a telephone. So he was, um, you know, the most of the most affected of the four. So those four guys together that were known as the boys, and it was a term of endearment because they were just sweet. You know, they had these sweet dispositions. They didn't date girls. They liked girls, but they didn't date them. You know, they weren't of that. You know, they would just probably laugh and giggle like boys would. But they were grown men in men's bodies. And they were all very athletic. And one thing that they loved was playing basketball. They played on a basketball team called the Gateway Gators at a place called the Gateway Projects in Yuba City, California. And uh, they were very competitive. And these guys worked out a lot. They were they were muscular. They were you know a lot. They were all pretty tall. And they were they were good athletes. Even though they were slow, you know, mentally they were still really good athletes and just loved basketball. And that's where the, the fifth member, an outlier to the group named Gary Mathias came in. Gary was 25 years old and he was going to the Gateway Projects as well. Gateway Projects was a place that, um, you know, would take in boys like that, that had a disability and they would teach them a trade, how to strip wire for Pacific Cable and Gas in California and, you know, kind of, you know, teach them to be, you know, kind of, uh, 
you know, be better adapted to the world and 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 be able more productive citizen kind of thing. Yeah, and then a Gary more shows up. Kind of thing. Yeah, more self sufficient stuff like that. So, and they also would take in people that you know were a little different than the boys. A guy like Gary Mathias, who is just basically a recovering drug addict. You know, Gary had struggled with substance abuse for years, and uh, Gary was also a schizophrenic, and he was taking medication for schizophrenia. But you know, hard drugs and schizophrenia are a bad mix. Uh, but but Gary was trying to get it together. He had been in the army, got thrown out of the army uh, for you know violent confrontation. So they finally just they just said you're you know this guy's not working out here. And so they booted him out of the army. He never really gets things back together too well. But he manages to get uh, stable on his medication for schizophrenia, and he's making some strides and kind of getting his life together. He's working for his father-in-law in the landscaping business. So he winds up over at the Gateway Projects, just kind of seeing a drug counselor type guy help, you know, make sure Gary kind of stays on the straight and narrow. And when he's there one day, this guy said, hey, you know, I need some help maybe coaching these guys at basketball. I know you used to play football at, uh, at Yuba City High School, and I know you're a pretty good athlete. You know, can you kind of show these guys a few things? And these guys already kind of knew how to play basketball, but they thought Gary might be able to add something to it. So that's how he comes into the polls with the five, making it the Yuba County five. But Gary is not slow. It's just he's a schizophrenic on – medication so that just right, right. kind of makes this whole dynamic kind of strange so um actually gary lived on the same street as ted weir did so he already he was already familiar with ted weir but he didn't know the other four but but gary was pretty much the leader because he was the most normal one gary could drive he had a driver's license and so did jack madruga jack madruga had been in the army and he did have a driver's license so uh all this comes together on february 24th of 1978 well let me let me jump in there. So we'll, I uh-huh. want to kind of flesh out a couple of points here on the uh, on the story as we go along. So, yeah, the it is an interesting case in a way. Uh, there's a film. People should see uh, the Woody Harrelson movie Champions. It's kind of like that is, I think, the closest maybe folks can kind of come to understanding these guys because it's Woody Harrelson. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he gets thrown out of college basketball and he and they uh, in order to get out of a DUI or something, he has to go and coach um, uh, a group of, of mentally handicapped um, kids. And they're a lot younger. In the movie, they're a lot younger than the Yuba County Five. But but they have jobs, and they – I think a lot of people kind of get hung up on this, on this case because we don't really necessarily – these folks, these guys, the boys – they weren't uh, diagnosed specifically with anything. It was no. kind of like this was the hazy, crazy 70s where it was, uh, you know, the R word was just thrown around and that was it. You, yep. That was just the tag. And, and they didn't really have the nuanced diagnoses that we have today. Um, but, you know, you made a point in the book and when we talked uh, last last year um, that all these guys, they graduated from high school. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them had jobs. Some of them had social lives. Um, so this two perception, were in the army. Yeah, two mm-hmm. were in the army. So this perception that they were hapless or stupid or incapable of navigating the world is just flat out wrong. It's just a complete uh, misconception. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about this Yuba County Five case, especially when it happened in '78, and no doubt in the many years that followed up until this sort of uh, the last decade or so when people really started to take a second look at it, I think it was just dismissed as um, these guys were incapable of handling the outside world and, and they, and, and, and then things went terribly awry, but it's like, uh, that's not, that's not really 
um, you know, that's really not the case. And and so we, we jump ahead here to the night of February 24th, 1978. And, and I guess to make that point abundantly clear, uh, I'll sort of fill in a little bit of the story and then we'll jump to you. But they, they, were, they drove approximately an hour north from their house to uh, yes. from their, from their yeah. homes in Yuba County to support the UC Davis basketball team. They were huge fans of the UC Davis basketball team. UC Davis Aggies, and, uh-huh. That's right. And they were playing uh, a game at Chico State. And I guess the, the point that I want to make is that th- this wasn't out of the question. This wasn't some crazy thing. This wasn't like their parents weren't like, oh, no, on the edge of their seats. These How are these guys going to – this was a perfectly normal thing, these guys – were perfectly fine to go to the basketball game, drive an hour north. They didn't need uh, a minder or like adult supervision or anything like. They were adults. They, they were adults. They were a little slow, but they were perfectly capable of handling themselves in the real world. And like I said, I think that people really get hung up on on that aspect of the case, and it kind of clouds their perception of what might have happened that night. So that's kind of that that's sort of a jumping off point I wanted to uh, to mention. Oh, that's so, important. Absolutely. I think, uh, I, I think it is. I really think it is. Cause like I said, it, it, these guys don't get their due. I think they're written off unfairly. Um, and so it's important that we stress this for the, for the listeners that, that these were, these were five capable adult men. I mean, uh, I'm looking at the ages here. Uh, Jack Madrid was 30. Ted, Ted Weir was yep. 32. 32. Uh, yeah. Bill Sterling's 29. I mean, that's not much, that's not much younger than me. At this point, I'm 44. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's not really, um, you know, these were, like I said, these were grown men. As you said, they were like, they were like boys in men's bodies, but they were perfectly mm-hmm. fine making this trip up to, uh, up to Chico okay. State. Yeah, absolutely. Or, they'd, they'd done it before. Yeah. You know, they, they traveled like that many, many times, day and night. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't something, you know, out of the question for them at all. But yeah, that's a good point to stress that do people do get hung up on the disability part of it, like a bunch of retarded guys, as they would say back then, or mild, even mildly right, retarded. Right. And that really wasn't the case. Some of these, you know, would have just been somebody on the spectrum, like a Jack Madruga, you know, or Jackie, just really slow learners. But yeah, they got out of high school too in the army. Jack could drive. He had a driver's license, which is real important. But yeah, they, they weren't as bad off as, as people, as people make them out to be. They were very capable and they were strong. These were strong athletic guys that did, played sports all the times and that, you know, they could, you know, they could get around. They're very physically fit. Uh, all, all of them, even Gary Mathias, very, you know, he, although he had some issues, but uh, Gary Mathias, very fit guy. And, uh, you know, he was kind of the leader, but, but uh, you know, they kind of had their own ways as well. So they all together as five, no one really worried about them too much. You know, their parents didn't worry much. They all lived at home, including Gary Mathias. All five of the boys still did live at home, but uh, they were, you know, pretty independent, like you were trying to to say. They they were absolutely independent. So, um, yeah, February twenty fourth, nineteen seventy eight. They're going to go see their favorite basketball team play. They they eat, sleep, and drink the UC Davis Aggies, that are, of course based out of Sacramento, kind of basically their hometown because Yuba City so close to uh, Sacramento in California. So they're going up to a town called Chico to watch them uh, a road ga- you know a, a road game to see them play the Chico State Wildcats, and it's basically a throwaway game. It's not going to be close. Um, UC Davis Aggies were pretty good that year. They're pretty good basketball tradition, and they were pretty much going to, you know, mop the floor with with uh, Chico State. <laughs> and um, but but it didn't matter to the boys. They just wanted to see that team. So they all packed into Jack Madruga's 1969 Mercury Montego, 
And this was Jack Madruga's pride and joy. And it's an important part of the case is this car because uh, Jack loved the car. Jack's nickname, by the way, was Doc. They all called him Doc because he used to watch uh, Bugs Bunny a lot. And it was just a cute thing about him that he just would quote, what's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? So they started calling him Doc. That's how he acquired the nickname. So they all called him Doc. So if I accidentally say Doc instead of Jack, I mean Jack Absolutely. or Doc yeah. <laughs> or back and forth. But, uh, but you know, he was the driver and it was his car. And he almost never let anyone else drive that car because it was his baby. Occasionally he would let his uh, nephew drive it. Uh, maybe one other person, but that was it. No, almost no one could even touch the car because he kept it pristine condition. He wouldn't even drive it down a road if he thought it would, if it would bottom out or scratch the bottom of his car. He was so obsessive about the car, but, uh, they all loaded in the Montego. Uh, I think Gary was the last to be picked up and was sitting in the passenger seat, I believe. And then they went to go, uh, fill up the gas at the Miko gas station that was run by, uh, Bill Sterling's parents. So they, uh, Topped off the car with gas, and Bill got his allowance, and they headed off off the road to Chico. No one thought a thing about it, and their parents said, hey, uh, most of the, these guys, they were going to – a really important part of it is they're going to play in a Special Olympics game the next morning. Right. And this is yeah. like a state final for their team with the Gateway Projects. They were called the Gateway Gators, and they were all looking forward to this game, far more than the Chico game. That was just something fun to do, but they were really looking forward to playing in a game the next morning. And uh, at least two of them told their mothers, don't let me oversleep. Don't let me oversleep, you know, because we got to meet in the morning to go up to Sacramento and play this game. And uh, they would lay their uniforms out, you know, so they'd be ready to put on their shoes and get get ready to go up to Sacramento to play in that big game. But anyway, they all lump into the car, top it off with gas, and they head up to Chico. And they uh, arrive at the game. People remembered seeing them at the game. And, of course, uh, their team won big. And they were in good spirits, so they all left the game. It was, you know, not many people attended, probably like 30% fullness in the, in the arena that night. So they they left and went to a nearby uh, convenience store called Bear's Market, and they bought snacks for their hour trip home. And uh, the, the girl that was working that night, uh, I think her, her name was Mary Davis, I believe, and she remembered the boys coming in right before closing time. And she remembered thinking, man, these jerks, you know, like I was trying to close the <laughs> store down and go home early, but now these five guys come in here all all happy and they want to you know they're buying milk and a langendorf lemon pie one of them ate and just you know chips or whatever and she just recalled them being you know being in a, in a pretty upbeat mood but her being mad that they came in right when she was trying to close the store but she didn't remember anything else uh, out of place whatsoever so they got all their snacks got back into the car and uh, never made it back to to right. uh yuba city ever that's probably the last time they're ever seen is by you know, Mary Davis at the, the, uh, at the bears market. So uh, it's somewhere around two or three in the morning. And one of the mothers calls another mother said, Hey, have you seen Jack or have you seen Bill? And um, I'm a Jean Weir, Ted's mother's like, I haven't seen Ted. So they're all, the mothers are calling each other and they're right, three in the right. morning. They know something's wrong. These guys should have been home about 1030 or so. Right, right, because they have this enormous yeah. game the next day. I think that's enormous game. You, know, you already yeah. mentioned it, but this is like you said, they huge. They, they, huge. they were, and other than that, it would be out of character for them. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one thing so that totally kind of out of character that, that kind of flashed in my head that I hadn't even never thought of until we were talking tonight was like, I suppose in some people's minds, just they think there's a possible. Maybe these guys all got drunk or something. No, nothing. They yeah, all, no, they were, you know. Uh-uh. Yeah, so there wasn't anything they, they like straight laced guys other than Gary. Right, you know, right. Gary had a yeah. you know alcohol and drug pass, but but Gary, 
was doing pretty well on his, on his drugs for schizophrenia, and he wanted to play in that game as bad as anybody. He was really right, right, fired right, up yeah. about playing in that game. Um, you know, so so it comes into play a lot. But anyway, you know, so the yeah. mothers are calling three in the morning, four in the morning. I mean, they're like, something is not right. Someday, you know, t- Tony's book coming out. Uh, this is a big problem. And they really knew something was bad when they were all supposed to meet up. At, at a, I think the Montgomery Ward or something in Yuba City, and they were all going to meet up and drive to go play the game. And when none of them showed up for that, it, it, they knew that, that this is tragically wrong. The police were called and the search was on. They, they didn't even wait any longer. They, we got to figure out where these guys are. So they contacted the Yuba County police. Uh, they put out, um, you know, some bulletins about what kind of car Jack Madruga thought, you know, drove and all that. So it's about three days later, they find on, on a Monday, I think that's uh, February 27th. I'm not sure so around there. Uh, somebody finds Jack Madruga's Mercury Montego parked up in the Plumas National Forest near a place called the Rogers Cow Camp. So that's right, the now first let me jump in on you, sign of them. Uh, Drew, let me jump in on you. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, let me just. <laughs> no, no problem, man. <laughs> um, it's important to note, I think, that to <clears throat> when I was putting all this together, like in my head, I kind of eventually was like, I got to look at a fucking map here because I can't really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and so what people have to think about, right? They they drive an hour north to Chico. So they're yeah, missing. Kind of... uh, they're missing and they don't know where they are. So the search, they're looking for them in the wrong Eventually, we realize that they were looking for them in the wrong place. So when they're when way Jack off Madrug- course, right, 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 like an hour, I think it was like seventy miles or something of, of, away from where Jack Madruga's car was eventually found, and it was it was found by just some random person on the driving on the road, right? And they were like, "Oh, what's this? An abandoned car here? I better call it in." Then, then yeah, you know, no, then it was a police. It was a police officer okay, that found police the officer. car that right. noticed the car up there okay, abandoned. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they so kind they, of put they two really, and two together, they, and they're like, yeah, oh, so they, that guy yeah, they, they, down there. Yeah, they attach it to the boys pretty quick, but they were they were not uh, – they were way off course. Uh, Chico is about, you know, like you said, an hour. Not, not a straight shot, but not too bad to get up to Chico, about an hour. And it's kind of northwest. And then where they were found were, were more was more northeast, but way off course, about 70 miles up into the Plumas, Plumas National Forest. Uh, where the car was found, by the way, um, and you had to go past a town called Oroville, where you have to go over a long, long bridge. So that'll become important because this isn't just a bunch of guys uh, getting lost. And I, and I never thought that. But a lot of people think, oh, they just got lost. They're way lost if that's what happened. So car is found and uh, the search is on. The problem is, is that it, they're already at a high elevation where the car was found. It was about 5,000 feet up the Oroville Quincy Highway. And this is basically the middle of nowhere. It's it's nothing but cold, desolate. It's February up there. Uh, there's snow everywhere. A blizzard came in and they, you know, they start searching snowmobiles, this, this whole area around the car and they find nothing, uh, zero. And they're trudging through the snow. Uh, there's no sign of anything. And they, they just can't figure this out. Where did they where did they go? They found uh, inside the car, they found the wrappers and everything, but no other clues to what happened to the boys. They, there was a quarter of tank uh, of gas in the car. The, ga- the car was completely operational. They hotwired the car and they drove it back to Oroville. There was nothing mechanically wrong with the car. It looked like it had just been barely snuck in a, in a little bit of snow, just, to, just enough to get the car stuck where five of these athletic guys could have easily have pushed it out and they knew it, but it, right, for right. some reason, it looks like they just abandoned the car window rolled down, which is something 
uh, Jack Madruga would have never done. He would have never walked away from his car with a window down. He babied Absolutely, that thing. Yeah. Uh, they left the car in a hurry. Whatever happened, they, they left this car in a hurry, but there was no sign of the boys anywhere uh, around this place called Rogers Cow Camp. And then, um, you know, they're trying to think of all these different theories that may have happened. There's one that came up where they thought, well, maybe they went to go see Gary's friends in a, in a town called uh, Forbes Town or near Brownsville, California, and that didn't really pan out. And then there was a, a potential sighting of the boys in, uh, I think it was uh, in Brownsville and or Forbes Town, and they were going into a convenience store, and a lady remembered them uh, coming in. One was using the phone, and another was buying food or something. But none of the families believed it because she said they were all in a truck. And they were like, no, why would, they would not have been up there without being in Jack's Mercury Montego. Right. It just didn't make sense to them. And they said, I think they thought that the woman saw Jackie Hewitt using the telephone, which is something he never did. He'd have other people make his call. So that that sighting just didn't really pan out. And, uh, you know, the, but they but they looked into it. And then by this time, there's a reward out by the family. So, you know, it was $500 at first, and then I think it got higher and higher, which was a lot of money back then. And they weren't wealthy. These people did not have, you know, money. These were very yeah. working-class families, it's important to note. Right, and, right. What I think is interesting, too, is uh, I think I pulled this right from your book, is that the, the – I think you specifically mentioned, similar to Dyatlov Pass, the idea here, the sort of idea when they find this car is that, much like those poor hikers in the Ural Mountains, whatever uh, impacted these five guys, the Yuba County Five, uh, an unknown compelling, compelling force, force. Yep, yep, force. drove yep. them from the car. That's Some what it was. unknown yep. compelling force. The same mysterious, you know, maybe not the same actual thing, but the same phenomenon, if you will. Something caused them to frantically get the fuck away from this car yeah immediately and and leave it unlocked leave the window down and like you said jackie madruga would uh would never ever have done this with his car he was fastidious in how he took care of it so something in an instant made them depart from the car so i mean this this case has layers and layers of weird on it and that's layers yeah, big layer of weird that is, you know, I think that's sort of that. I, I think that's a lot of uh, kind of where the Dyatlov Pass comes from in a way. Also, that there's a mystery on a mountain, if you will. But that unknown compelling force um, that we're all still trying to figure out what it was in, 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 yeah. in both instances, but especially in this one. Um, yeah. Now, as you said, there's a reward out. I think we should jump here to the dubious testimony of one Joseph Shones. Because that to me so, is is sort of he now we've got where do you hear about this guy, folks? Now we've got a real character who fucking inserts himself into the mix with a story that is just just like it's it's like come on, man, this is already weird enough. We, now you're yeah you now you're jumping in with with a, a crazy ass account of what you saw that night, Joe Shones. So tell us yes. about Joseph Shones and how he so got Joe, stuff like this. Joseph Shones goes by Joe. He's literally the town drunk. Uh, one person that, that I spoke to that knew him fairly well, cause it was his neighbor called him a wet brain alcoholic. That was his favorite way to describe Joe Shones. He said, um, that the guy was just, uh, you know, just incredulous. He would be, you know, he would, he would, if he opened his mouth, he was lying about something. They would lie about <laughs> his experiences in the military around other vets. And they would question this guy and say, there's no way that's impossible. But the guy would just double down on his lies and just keep on going. You know, he was just. One of these just horrible 
town drunk guys that just would never yeah. shut up and, and kind of did things his own way. So I, I don't recall exactly when Joe Shones, come, Joe Shones comes forward with this story, but it's uh, a couple of weeks or so after the boys go missing and he, and he hears about the case because the search is on. And they have found nothing. They have found nothing but the Montego. The, the Montego, they found nothing around it within a perimeter. They're searching snowmobiles, like I said, all over, uh, tracking dogs, nothing. But, you know, a blizzard had come in at that elevation, made the searching really difficult, but they're, they're finding nothing. So they're really hungry to find anything about these guys. So this guy comes forward named uh, Joe Shones. He lives in a town called Berry Creek, just outside of Oroville. So he's basically a local, not, not too far from um, – where they found the Montego in um, Rogers Cow Camp. He lives about 25 miles from there. But this is going way up this mountain at this point right. on the Oroville Quincy Highway. So Jones comes forward with this story, uh, you know, because something finally he tells him, oh, I, I kind of remember something about this. So his story was that he had gone to a place called the Mountain House Lodge to have a drink. Or, and he goes up there and people actually, he actually was there. People remembered him coming in. And uh, he saw some people that obviously knew him because he's not far, you know, doesn't live far from there. And then he gets back into his Volkswagen Beetle. And he's for some reason, when he leaves, people remembered him leaving, going the wrong direction. He's basically going up the mountain in the direction of Rogers Cow Camp. And remember, there's nothing up here. And right. um, what his story was, was that he was going to check the snow line for a ski weekend with his daughter and his wife, which is complete bullshit. <laughs> but <laughs> at the time, you know, people had to take him seriously. So he, his story is he goes up in his VW Beetle and uh, he gets up close to the Rogers Cow Camp and he gets snuck in the snow. And uh, he gets out of his Beetle. And this is going to, this is around, I think about 7.30 PM or so. I don't remember exactly when, but it's, you know, kind of early evening after he left Mountain House. So he gets out of his car to kind of push it out of the snow. And in the process, he has a mild heart attack and he's, you know, he gets sick and he vomits because of the heart attack. And he gets back in his car because it's freezing at this point at that elevation. So he gets back in his VW Beetle for the heat. Uh, with the heater on, with the with it still running, and uh, at some point he's awakened around midnight, and he sees uh, some headlights behind him, and he sees that people get out of a of a car, and he remembers like four men and a woman holding a baby is what he remembers, and he sees the flashlight, so he gets out of the car and he says, you know, help me, help me, I've you know I've had a heart attack, please help me. And nobody comes to his aid, and he's, like, really stunned by this. And he's like, why aren't these people helping me? And then all of a sudden, they get back in the car, and the headlights go out, and he doesn't see anything anymore. And there's another version of the story where another car comes up behind him. But but the official one, I think now, is that it was only one time where this car comes okay, up behind yeah. him, woman and a baby, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's um, very convoluted. Yeah, it's very, it's very convoluted because, you know, because he tells it, he told it multiple times, and it gets conv convoluted. But it's basically the one-time thing. Uh, they get back in the car. They don't come to his aid. He's really upset by this. So he gets back in his car until the gas runs out. So he doesn't have heat anymore. So this is around uh, five, six in the morning. So he decide, finally decides to get out of his car after, uh, you know, suffering this heart attack and just you know, fighting the cold. So he starts making the walk back to the mountain house, which is a good, I think he's a good uh, 12 miles. I mean, a good, a good, a good long walk. Can't remember. Yeah. A certain amount of miles. I mean, I don't even know how he can do this after having this mild heart attack, but he remembers right, walking right. past the Montego and uh, looking inside it. He doesn't remember seeing the keys, but he, you know, he noticed that nobody was inside it, but he made note that he, that he saw the Montego. He goes back to the mountain house lodge. 
it's people are, are there, I guess, open early in the morning or doing whatever. And <laughs> he walks in and he comes up to the bar and he made the makes the comment to someone working there. He said, I should have done this two years ago. And uh, two different people verified that. It's actually in the police files that he made that comment. No, he still knows what, what he meant by it, but he said, I should have done this two years ago. What? Yeah. That, yeah. Did you ever hear that? that no. Yeah, he made that comment. I that was in yeah. your book. That's, yeah, that's new information. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't have the files when I wrote that book, but that's wow. in the police files. Well, let's Goes stop back. there for a minute and speculate. Yeah. What, the, what do you think he's saying there? Uh, you know, if you want to get real wild and get off the trail, I think maybe – and, you know, I've had people even come after me even for for suggesting this, but but uh, tough shit. I think it could have been a botched kidnapping. Wow. Interesting. I really do. A botched kidnapping of one of the Yeah, something like a Chowchilla. Guys? You know, the, like Chowchilla, something like that, that, you know, with a bus with the kids on it. Oh. Like something along that line. Remember, that that happened not, you know, pretty close in time to that with a, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the Chowchilla thing and the bus. And they buried the bus and they managed to break break out. And yeah, caught the guys that, that did story. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that was kind of a similar time, you know, where where dumbasses would do stuff like that. Yeah, That's crazy. I mean, he made that, that comment. That. That's in the police files, and and they recalled him clearly saying that I should have done this two years ago. He asked for a couple of bufferin because he had had a heart attack, so they gave him a couple of bufferin, <laughs> and they even made note that it was bufferin. It wasn't some, you know, uh, Tylenol. It was bufferin, and they remembered that, and that was in the police file. So he was up there. For sure. This, you know, he didn't lie about being up up the mountain yeah. because, it, it, you know, they went and retrieved his car from up there. They went and got the, the Volkswagen Beetle. So he makes that comment. I think he got a cup of coffee or something, and this couple winds up taking him home that I, I think kind of knew him but not really well. Of course, they drop him back off at home in, in Berry Creek, which is about 10 miles from uh, the mountain house. And, of course, he doesn't even thank him because that's Joe Shones. You know, people are always <laughs> no, getting this guy on. And they I, just I, take I, off. He sound, yeah, he sounds like a real character. Now he so when he got the car back, when he went and got his car back, the was the other car still there? Do we know that? No, they uh, no. I think they I think they had already they had already I think the Montego was already taken away. I I'm I'm the, not sure. That's a good question. That's a really yeah, good question. Yeah, because that's the weird part. I'm trying too, to bring it. Yeah. Yeah. Well it um, was which if the car was still there. When the, when they came and got his, I know he went. His wife went up there with somebody to retrieve uh, his VW Bug, but yeah, uh, it's a, that's a, one. Of yeah, the, I'm almost thinking it had to be gone because they would have seen that when they saw uh, Jack's Montego. Yeah, so. they found. Yeah, his car would have had to have been gone before the Montego, or else the they, they yeah would he would have noticed it. Yeah, I think they I think they may have gotten it maybe the next day then because they found Jack's car on that Monday evening, and his car on, wasn't there. So yeah, on the 26th. So yeah, so they must yeah, have gotten and, it. And you before. do you, you point out a number of issues here with the story uh, that I'll, I'll I'll sort of take the load off your uh, off your back here. Where the he said he sat in the car for five hours uh, running the heat, but the car had to run to uh, for the heat to to work. So that is yep. not possible. Pw air air cold engine it wouldn't wouldn't produce heat if the car wasn't running. You know, like actually driving. You know, just having it on wouldn't do it. You have to have that wind going through the air-cooled engine to, to to trigger the heater. You could get an aftermarket heater, but this old drunk Joe Sones didn't have one of those. So the car was right. not producing any heat while it wasn't running. So 
That's the first sign it's a bullshit story. Yeah, yeah. And then he said he was going to look for the for the snow line. He would know that <laughs> information. It wasn't like you had yeah. not, you don't you didn't have to go up to the fucking mountain to know that. Yeah. He was he said he owned a cabin up there. there. Yeah. He said he owned no a cabin up there. He didn't. He did not own a cabin up there. He owned he had a trailer and some property in Berry Creek, which is, you know, further south of the mountain house. He owned nothing up up the Oroville Quincy Highway. Nothing. So yeah. that was a lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and he was woefully out of shape. So there's just no way this guy was going on any kind of skiing trip. Uh, no, this guy know. wasn't skiing anywhere. He always fought with his wife. Uh, you know, I know a guy that talked to his daughter and she, she you know, she actually has an a intellectual disability herself, which is interesting because the boys did. But uh, she even scoffed at the notion of a ski, of a ski trip with her father because, you know, it's just something they never did. So that's Joe Shones, and and we'll probably get into him a little bit later as we sort of look at these different scenarios. Um, I think what people uh, to sort of will connect back to the narrative here. So we've got four different jurisdictions are working on searching for uh, the boys, uh, and there's all kinds of inclement weather. This is difficult terrain. Um, there's tremendous snowfall, um, and it's this vast distance of wilderness. So they're they're pretty much it's a really difficult search. And what I thought was interesting as I did my research into the stories, especially leaning on your book heavily. Um, was that they go missing on February 24th. They find the car about uh, February 27th or so. They search right. through around late March, and then they just call off the search. And I and then, yeah. so we're talking April, May, go by. No one's even looking for them. Maybe family members are up there kind of toiling around looking. Oh, for yeah. Them. The family members were always trying to get involved. Uh, go up there, do what they could. They were desperate. Uh, Jack Madruga's mother consulted a psychic that was pretty well known, and the police took that seriously. They 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 wanted to find these guys so bad. Uh, Lieutenant Lance Ears Ears was one of them because he had gone to school with a couple of the uh, couple of the boys, and he was really dedicated to try to find them. So they they sat down with the psychic. There's actually a they actually have a recording of the oh, psychic wow. reading from this case. Yeah, there's that recordings out there. I have it somewhere where the lady's actually doing a reading and they took it seriously. And she had a vision that they were held at some house and there were some numbers on the door. So the police actually went around looking for this house that she saw because that oh, they wow. were that desperate. Of course, yeah. none of it was right, but yeah. they, uh, they were that desperate to, to look down any Avenue, any place that could help. They were, you know, no stone unturned kind of thing, literally uh, trying to find these guys. But yeah, all these months in nothing, you know, inclement weather, uh, and, and nothing found until, of course, uh, early uh, early June um, mm. of nineteen seventy eight. That's finally starting to uh, things are finally starting to thaw out. And there's a group of motorcycle riders, and they're coming uh, into this place near the Daniel Zink campground. And there's a, a place called the uh, it's a firebase camp for the, for the U.S. Forestry Service, which is right outside the the Daniel Zink campground, and uh, these five motorcycle riders pull into this place, and one of them takes off his helmet and immediately hit with this this horrible smell, this sweet, sticky smell that that something was 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 dead. And he thought, "There's got to be a, a big dead animal around here because it's it, it was so pungent that he you know almost threw up." And uh, you know the other riders are there, and th- that this this one you know lead guy after taking off his helmet, he wanted to see what the source of the smell was. And he noticed there's these two Forest Service trailers that face each other, and they have a common 
deck between them and he walks up to one of them and he can tell that the, the door had been opened and he goes in and finds the body of Ted Weir laying on a bed, 32 year old Ted Weir was laying on a bed on his back. He's got eight sheets pulled up to his neck, perfectly up to his neck. Um, he's obviously deceased. Some of his toes are missing from gangrene and frostbite. He's has some of his items beside him on a table and he's lost about 80 pounds. He weighed about 200. And at this time he's about 120 pounds. And that was the first discovery of, you know, the first big break after all those months, they finally found one of the boys yep. in that forest service trailer uh, after all those months. So then the search was on because, you know, they alerted the authorities and they immediately started searching the surrounding area of this U.S. Forest Service uh, fire camp. And they, uh, I think two days later, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while since they've gone through it all. They, they found yep. uh, some scattered remains of, um, they found Jack Madruga's uh, remains. He was holding his watch in his left hand. His right arm had been separated and dragged away by animals, but he was still holding his, uh, he was holding his wristwatch in his left hand. His right, right arm was gone. His car keys were still on him which is interesting because that means he drove his own car up to the Rogers cow camp. So that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jackie Hewitt, they found, I think Jackie was found a couple more days later. I think, um, I think Jack was found along with uh, Bill cause they were, they were, they were good friends and they, they were somewhat found close together, but their bodies had already been, you know, some of their bones have been dragged away by animal predation and things like this. But uh, it was really tragic because uh, Jackie Hewitt's father was up there looking for him. Jack senior, and uh, he was there when they found his his, his uh, bones. He picked up his jacket and his tailbone fell out of it. It was very, you know, traumatic stuff. Bill Sterling's father was up there when they, uh, one of the other searchers found uh, Bill's remains and it was just yep. devastating. And he said, he said, sir, I think we found him. And he says, how do you know? He goes, well, because we, you know, his wallet is still on. I'm talking about Bill Sterling's. And he says, well, you know, are you sure? And he said, yes, there's a picture of the twins in there. He had two twin sisters younger and oh, uh, his social security cards in there and his license. So, so we, they knew it was him. So he's yeah. devastated by this. There's actually a photograph of his um, Bill Sterling's father sitting, being consoled by a friend not far, you know, on this just moments after, you know, the press wasn't real friendly. They were kind of, you know, up there knowing they're finding these guys now. So, um, in those next three days, they had found the remains of everybody except for Gary Mathias, who's still not been found to this day. Uh, right. Gary, they, they, they think Gary made it to the trailer. That's what they, they believe the police they believe that Gary made it to the trailer along with, <clears throat> of course, Ted Weir. Yeah. Cause Ted was found there and they think also Jackie Hewitt made it and they think that, um, that Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling perished from hypothermia before they even right. made it to the trailer. So just to give you an idea of, of, of the distance, they're going up the Orville Quincy Highway. It, it, it winds around these mountains. But as the crow flies from where the car was abandoned to where they found them in this firebase camp was about 5.7 miles as the crow flies. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> going around the road, it was closer to maybe 16 miles. If you walked along the road, an easier way to get there. We obviously don't know the direction the boys took, but they were wearing street clothes. They, you know, they were, they didn't think they needed their jackets to go to a, a basketball game in Chico right, where it wasn't right, yeah. that cold and they'd drive straight home. So they're wearing street clothes. They're not wearing heavy jackets. I think a couple of them had light jackets like Gary and they're going through uh three to six foot snowdrifts at the dead of night, freezing, 
And, you know, we're talking back miles to, and miles and miles too. miles like, and miles of walking. Yeah. Not like you're um, not like talking freezing, about like I, a football you know, like field. Yeah. We're talking, we're talking like ten, five, six, seven miles, miles, miles. In, shortest distance might have been maybe 12. I mean, yeah. you know, cause they couldn't really walk as the crow flies. They'd have to, you know, kind of meander around. And one of the theories is, is they followed the path left by a snowcat vehicle that kind of plows the road and hit in that there was a snowcat that went up the day before they went missing. They, you know, went missing that late Friday night, but the day before a snowcat went up to that very uh, forest service camp to get the snow off of the trailers. So the yeah. roofs wouldn't collapse. So they surmised that maybe the boys found that trail and followed it as far as they could all the way to the trailer. And that's how they found and the I, trailers. And just to make a note here, I have for my notes uh, from the book. Yeah. The snowcat trail is 10 miles approximately 10 miles long. I guess I think yeah. folks need to wrap their minds around this. We know for a fact Ted Weir got to the fucking cabin. He made so it, no like doubt. He he would have had to have walked 10 miles in this it's freezing in this temperature. Atrocious condition weather-wise. Street clothes. Yeah, and it's and uh, as you pitch mentioned earlier, it pitch yeah, pitch black. I mean, I don't know how long it would take to walk ten miles, but we're talking hours. Like yeah, in those conditions, just, yeah. going uphill. You know, that's yeah. what's not normal. When you get lost, you usually right. go back downhill, even on foot. That's, you go. It's just a normal inclination of a human being to go downhill. Right. But they know right. they that's go up. The hardest direction they go up. Aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. Very strange yeah, yeah. that they would go. Because you know, up civilization is down the hill. And again, these guys would know this. That they're, they would, they're, they, this is, they have the common sense necessary to know that if they went downhill, they would find civilization. The further uphill they went, it was likely to be more desolate. Um, now, some of the interesting conditions of the trailer, as you mentioned, Gary uh, Matthias' shoes were in the trailer. Ted Weir's yes. are missing. Um, Ted Weir's so no one's shoes quite were missing. sure what that's all about. Well, they think that it's possible that, that Gary Mathias switched shoes with Ted Weir because Ted right, had bigger right. feet. He was taller that Gary switched shoes or took Ted's heavier, sturdier leather shoes and decided to head on out for help. And we don't know exactly when, but they did find Gary Mathias's sneakers in the Forest Service trailer. One strange thing was that there was never any evidence of a fire being lit at all. And, of course, right. I don't think there's anything inside these trailers, but they would have definitely had enough kindling to start one outside, which would have been far warmer. I mean, the trailer will give you a little bit um, of, of you know, some, you know, some comfort because of wind, but there was a, yeah, you know, they broke a window to get in initially. Yeah. So that wind, that cold air is still getting through that window and right. it's metal. Uh, you're not getting that much warmth from it. So, but they had all kinds of kindling in the trailer. There was matches in there. No one tried to start a fire, which makes no sense because Gary Mathias was in the army. So was Jack. They could have, they knew how to start a fire. Uh, another thing was, was there were sea rations in a neighboring trailer and they found these sea rations and broke into a cabinet and it was attached to the other trailer, I believe. And uh, only about 16 or 17 sea rations were even open. Two were open with a P-38 can opener, which only guys in the Army would have known how to use. So they think that that was Gary Mathias because uh, they don't think Jack Madruga made it to the trailer. But we don't know 100% of any of that. That's just what they speculate. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was propane uh, there on one. Right. Yep. Well, I think you point out that the, nope. the – or it may have been. I don't know. With a P-38, people make a big to-do about the P-38 can opener, but it's really not that – fucking complicated you like, don't have to be a damn you can, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's not that it's, hard 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's like a straight out of the 1950s style can opener. It's like, I'm sure if you gave it to someone off the street right now and handed them a can, they'd probably... They could probably figure it out. Them, yeah, maybe five or ten minutes to go, oh, all right, you got to put the thing here, and then you twist, oh, okay, I got yeah, it. So yeah, if you were motivated and, hungry and starving to death, you'd figure it out. But yeah, yeah but the weird thing much is, to do is... about There's much to do about the can opener where it's like, oh... These guys wouldn't know, and it's like, no, no, no. Yeah, they, I they think a friend of mine, to Tony Danelli, kind of debunked that quite a bit because he could have done it with a church key or, or yeah, um, yeah, something like that. But the thing is, is not that much food was consumed. Right. And one of the theories is, well, the boys, the way they were, they would have thought it was stealing, even if they're starving to death. But, you know, obviously it wouldn't have bothered Gary Mathias, which leads mm -hmm. to another lot of weird trails you can go down. But uh, not much food was consumed, and there was enough food there for all five of them to survive for a year. I mean, yeah. this place was well stocked. It was a it was a it was a Forest Service trailer uh, base camp, but it was one that was pretty remote and it was not manned year round, obviously, because there was no one there. But they did maintain it, so you know they they surmised maybe they did follow that path of the snowcat. But not much food was consumed by even if three of these guys made it. Not much food remains were found there yeah. at all. So that's one of the first big mysteries. Second, no fire anywhere. No no evidence of a fire, but you know. Maybe there was one, and then the snow came in and covered it, but it doesn't look like they ever started a fire. Right. Now, when they found Ted Weir's body, he lost about 80 pounds. He weighed about 200, and he was down to, like, 120 when they found him. It was just basically like a skeleton, and they could tell by his beard growth that he was alive in that trailer for at least 8 to 10 weeks. So somebody had to have been taking care of him because he was had severely yeah. frostbitten feet, and gangrene, some of his toes were missing, and they it must have been excruciating pain for him, yeah. uh, the condition his toes were in. Like, somebody had to be taking care of him. Somebody had pulled those bed sheets up perfectly yeah, someone, around him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, someone and it's had debated. It, it, we debated, was it Gary Mathias taking care of him, or was Jackie Hewitt able to take care of him? Jackie's family says certainly he could have. Uh, we don't know that Gary didn't head out early. Maybe Gary got there, knew they were in trouble, switched shoes, put on Ted's sturdier shoes, and headed it out and just – got far, far enough away, and then he succumbed to hypothermia. We don't know because they've never right, found right. they never found Gary's remains. But what's strange is really no evidence of a fire, plenty of kindling matches in that trailer. There was propane, but it, it maybe you could, you could probably see how maybe they missed that, where you could go in and actually turn the propane on. I mean, these things were fully yeah, yeah. stocked. You yeah, could, they could was, live there for a year comfortably in that trailer uh, with heat, absolutely. food, everything you wanted was there. But mm -hmm. not much of it was used, and it just it makes no sense. It was almost like they were afraid to call attention to themselves once they got there. Like something scared the hell out of them Yes. to abandon a perfectly running car. There was nothing wrong with the car mechanically. Had a quarter tank of gas. It started right up. There was, I mean, it just boomed. As soon as they hot, they actually hot wired it. Started right up. Right. Uh, right. Wasn't so stuck that bad. I'll, absolutely not. Yeah. So I'm gonna circle back and do sort of a and and. I don't really have us penciled in for a certain length of time here. You cool to just keep going for a little while here? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what you're Okay, cool. Definitely. All right, man. cool, 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 cool. Um, I tend to be a long talker, and this show, this story needs to really be fleshed out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It does. We've done an hour here. We've, it's a I great we've, one. We've just done the story itself and sort of to circle back now for the people kind of, I don't know, just joining us after watching Family Feud or whatever. We're just coming in. I don't know how, <laughs> don't know how that happens. But, but so the to, to make a long story short, and then we're going to get into the theories. Um, you've got four 
uh, developmentally disabled guys who are pretty capable adults, essentially, despite uh, their their shortcomings, if you will. And I'm, I, folks, I really am trying to be as as compassionate about all this as I can. I'm not perfect with the nomenclature, and I apologize if uh, if I if I you know uh, stray in the wrong direction. Um, and of course, Gary Mathias, who's uh, a schizophrenic, but Beyond that is is perfectly capable of, of mentally navigating, um, you know, the world. He doesn't have sort of the developmental disables, disabilities these guys have. So these five guys, they go to the basketball game. Everything seems fine. Somehow or another, they wind up about 70 miles off course on this fucking mountain. Some unknown compelling force either puts them on the mountain or undoubtedly causes them to flee the vehicle, okay? Then they're missing. Ted Weir winds up in the cabin. Uh, the other two guys, uh, Gary Matthias is never seen again. Never okay? seen again to this day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, here's my thing. Yeah, so Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga are found along the road. Uh, yep. I don't have it right in front of me. Leading up yep. to the cabin, I think it's believed that they were on their yeah, way. Yeah, about two miles or so. It's about two miles right, away. Right. Jackie Hewitt is found a quarter of a mile from the cabin, which, as you were kind of alluding to, seems to suggest he made it to the cabin. Um, and as I said, Gary Mathias is missing. So we that, that's sort of the thumbnail version of the story. And to this day, we don't know what happened we we don't know what don't know why this very weird chain of events to happen why they didn't seem to use the cabin and what that unknown compelling force was um so let's get into the theories now so by virtue of him being missing by virtue of them never finding him gary Matthias, in some ways he's the cat he's seen by some as the catalyst he's definitely the outlier of the story but by virtue of being schizophrenic as opposed to the other four guys having developmental disabilities. Um, so he's sort of the cat. He's the outlier of the group, and he's the one that goes missing. So, of course, a lot of people wonder, think, postulate, speculate that he has something to do with this. So I guess let's explore sort of the Gary Mathias angle uh, theories, if you will, because there's a handful of different kind of versions of what he, how he might have factored into these, this chain of events. Yeah, you know the, the the you know the Gary Mathias angle. The Gary was responsible for this because he was schizophrenic and he had some control over the boys. And the other four were scared of Gary. Let's face it, they were. I know they were. That's uh, told to me enough. And unfortunately, they they were. And they were kind of, they, and they listened to him for the most part because they did fear him. I think all four of them together may have had you know be able to stand up to him to some level. But he didn't really order him around so much. But he was sort of the de facto leader. But he was also their protector. Gary was known for protecting the other four. He was. I mean, he would. Gary was a ballroom brawler, and uh, he would protect his buddy. So that's an important yeah. aspect of this case, and it could have led to what happened to him. But uh, you know, the the Gary possibly being responsible story starts with a uh, story that came out uh, years and years later in the Sacramento Bee. I don't remember what year, but it was uh, not too old of an article, maybe eight or nine years ago, by a guy named Benji Agle. Uh, okay. and he found out some more things about Gary's past where he punched a police officer. He, uh, tried to sexually assault his cousin's wife when she was knocked out on drugs after a surgery. You know, Gary did a lot of bad stuff. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He did. Right. He did. He had a, yeah, yeah. He did a lot of hard drugs. 
uh, you know, he, he was just uh, that kind of guy. He got into a lot of trouble, because, you know, maybe mostly in part to his schizophrenia. But like I said, it was under control. Uh, you know, from all accounts, he was taking it, it, his medicine steadily. His stepfather was giving it to him. So there really was no reason for Gary to go, you know, schizo, if you will, or, or uh, right. haywire. Is, you know, he, but he had done that a few times in the past. But this would have just been the really strange time to do that. He wants to play in this game the next day as bad as anybody. This is just to be a real weird time. So, of course, he's schizophrenic. Yeah. So it's not out of the question, unfortunately, that Gary just on the drive home just gets this wild idea and says, drive up here. And, you know, some people thought, well, maybe he's trying to go see his buddies in Forbestown or whatever, which is nonsense because they, they caught up with these two buddies and they said, we never saw him. We haven't seen him in two right. years. Uh, so it doesn't hold a lot of water. And Gary definitely wouldn't have set out to harm his friends because remember two of them are they died of hypothermia they know uh ted we know how they found ted you know it wasn't yeah. like he murdered him or he shot him or right, anything right exactly you yeah, know? yeah 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 the whole thing would be was gary the reason they got off course and were going up there in the first place was gary going to look for something you know that's 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 speculated you know did gary say hey go do this do that you know, one thing that I know for sure is I believe that uh, Jack Madruga drove his own car up there because when they towed it back to uh, Oroville, they looked under the underbody of that heavy, heavy American car, a 1969 Mercury Montego, big, heavy yeah. American car. And you had five grown men sitting in it. And mm -hmm. the, the, the road they were on was very rutted. And they noticed that the whole bottom of the car was pristine. Like whoever drove this car up there, one did it really gingerly avoiding every little thing he could see or somebody that knew that road backward and forward. Cause the road would wash right. out a lot during the, you know, it wasn't yeah, really yeah. well maintained. It was up there in the middle of nowhere, but they were stunned by how well the bottom of that car looked. It, it should have been rutted alone from going up the road to the Rogers cow camp. And it wasn't. So that yeah. tells me Gary drove his own, I mean, uh, uh, Jack drove his own car and they found the keys on Jack. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah it can yeah. be pretty it, safe. It, he drove his own car up there. So was this Gary uh, telling them under, you know, somewhat under duress? But that's another thing that points to if it was somebody else that took over the car, and that theory we'll get into a little bit, I I think they probably would have been driving the car themselves and not been so careful the way they drove it. So I'm a big believer that that uh, that Jack Madruga drove his own car up there. But the whole thing with uh, Gary Mathias being involved kind of comes from the Jackie Eagle article in the Sacramento Bee where he, you know, kind of released some uh, not-before-known yeah facts about gary Mathias being very violent uh yeah, yeah but yeah. but these guys weren't found i mean there was only bones left unfortunately so you probably couldn't really tell if they were hit by a blunt object their right, bones have right. been sitting in the forest ravaged by animals for days uh so we don't and know I, so i think it's important i lean against to, it okay yeah I, i'm in agreement there and i think it's important to note like two things here first of all <laughs> the real cynics um, and I think this was kind of how the media covered it when all this went down in the 70s. The real cynics are like, oh, these guys, these slow guys made a wrong turn and they got lost and it was death by misadventure, for lack of a better term. Yep. And it's like, no, they the made this trip to they made this trip to see the basketball game all the time. This was a straight shot. All the time. Uh, that was one of the things that straight stunned shot. me when, Easy. I, when I looked at the map. Um, Straight shot, maybe a curve a in it. Straight yeah. shot. You're not going to take a wrong turn. You're not going to yeah. get off the fucking highway. If you're you keep and going the other and going. Part that, 
The other part that's so critical, and we mentioned this earlier in the conversation, is that if there was nothing going on the next day, you could maybe entertain the idea that they decided to go do something, uh, go visit the friends or go up to the mountain to look at the stars or whatever. But this, I presume the game ended maybe like 9, 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah. Nine, about nine an hour drive home. 10.30 or home. Yeah, they have an enormous basketball game the next day. So the, the very thought that they would entertain this idea of, of an impromptu adventure that night, to me, is just does not hold any water whatsoever. Something None. put them on that mountain that we have yet to figure out. But it's not uh, their fault, if you will. It's not something – it's not a mistake is what I guess what I think is what a lot of – what people, I think, should try and wrap their minds around. This was not some kind of error that things went awry, like something else happened. Some Again, the unknown compelling force. Unknown um, compelling force. So – Something intervened. Something absolutely. intervened with them. Yeah. Something, to make yeah. them wind up there. And we yeah. don't know what it is. And we know they were at Bears Market. There mm-hmm. was early rumors that a that a fight broke out at, at, at the parking lot at Bears Market. There's never been any proof to this. This is just one of the many other theories out there. The fight broke out. They were picking on Jackie Hewitt, who would make these distressing, you know, sounds when he was being picked on, like, mm, mm, you know, because he, right, you know, right. did have some some, you know, cognitive issues. So he would get really nervous and upset and start making this really weird, you know kind of thing going and Gary would jump yeah. in and, and defend his buddies like hey you have to quit picking on my buddy and then you know fist fights ensued so that was one of the theories that they got into a fight in the, in the parking lot maybe by some opposing uh, fans which I doubt because this was a throwaway game it, re- it really yeah, was yeah. so no one really cared about no one really cared about Chico that, that year in basketball they were yeah this isn't red nobody or something like yeah that. this yeah. wasn't some close competitive you know, you're driving us crazy because you want thing at all. So, yeah, but maybe yeah. you know, there's a story that that might have happened—a fight at Bears Market—and then they were forced to get into different vehicles and they drive them up into uh, the, the Plumas National Forest and somehow force them out of the car. And they're running like banshees up up the hill in the snow. You know, back to that unknown compelling force. So that's right. That's right. one of them. Gary Mathias. Uh, fight at Bears Market, and another very, very popular theory in this case is called the Town Bully Theory. Yeah. Uh, and this is a guy that that lived in in Yuba City. He was, you know, he was literally a town bully. And this guy was a bad actor, man. He was just a a mean, evil guy. And yeah. uh, Gary Mathias knew this guy well, and they didn't always get along. And one of the stories that's most the most pervasive story about what happened to the boys in Yuba City is this particular theory. And it's that uh, the town bully, he was a guy had been in prison and he would just do awful things to people and everybody was scared of him. I mean, they literally scared of him. He was just that bad of a guy. Uh, the police didn't even intervene much with this guy because I was afraid they didn't even want to deal with him. He was so bad. Right, right, yeah. But um, the theory was that they somehow uh, encounter the town bully somewhere, maybe at the basketball game in Chico or the drive home where they, he knew they were going up there. Um, that he had a beef against Gary Mathias and, you know, for whatever reason, and the others just happened to be with him, but they catch up with him uh, at the Oroville Quincy Dam. And this is already off course, but this is going to be kind of close to where they're going to be going because they have to go over the Oroville Quincy Dam to get up to the Plumas. So they're somewhere near the dam. 
and these guys either pull them over, made them follow them, or forced them somehow to follow them, and they all get out of the car, and they immediately start picking on Jackie Hewitt. And there's there's a couple of slight variations in the story, the way it was told over the years, but this has been told in Yuba City ever since this happened, and the story has not changed much at all. It's, right. been it's persistent. almost like local lore in a way. Of it's like, local lore. Yeah. Yeah, And I can tell you some of the families of the boys, uh, particularly the Hewitts, fully believe this is what happened. Um, So they make them all get out. They start picking on Jackie Hewitt, kind of similar to the story of Bears. If that was the case, they start picking on Jackie Hewitt. Gary Mathias doesn't doesn't waste a second over there to defend Jackie. So they start, you know, uh, pummeling on Gary Mathias. And Gary Mathias winds up getting thrown over the the bridge at the Oroville Dam, killing him. Yeah. uh, Never to be seen again. And the other four boys are forced back into uh, uh, Jack Madruga's Montego. And then uh, they're either forced Jack at gunpoint to drive his own car all the way mm-hmm. up to Rogers Cow Camp, which would have been a pretty good haul from where the Orville Bridge was. I'm not sure. Maybe a 45-minute drive up this snowy mount, mountain climbing yeah. in elevation. And then uh, forced at gunpoint for the rest of the four boys to scatter like crazy right. up that mountain yeah. for their lives. Um that's the story. That's the town bully theory. The town bully throws him over the bridge, kills Gary Mathias, never seen again. And a couple of his henchmen, which there's names for these guys, by the way. They yeah, all have yeah, names. Yeah, I know yeah. who they are. Some of the henchmen are even identified uh, who they were. And, um, you know, they managed to get, you know, just told, hey, just get, you know, they didn't want to kill the rest of the four for whatever reason. Why? I don't know why they just don't kill them all, right? But yeah. the other four, mm-hmm. for some reason, are driven by another guy or – they make Jack drive his own car at gunpoint or followed or whatever they do. They they drop him off at Rogers Cow Camp, force him up in the mountain. I guess maybe thinking they'll they'll die on their own or they won't remember or, you know, that's kind of the thing. But that's – in a nutshell, that's what's called the town bully. Yeah. Thing. Now, I got to – I want to make a call back here to – didn't someone, one of this guy's gang – come and tell the fam one of the families that this is what happened and then he died the next day uh or shortly thereafter yes. of like a yes. mysterious drug overdose right there's a one of the guys that was supposedly there that night came and told gary matthias's mother and i know gary's sister well i had two sisters um sharon who unfortunately took her own life years ago um and then he's got another sister named tammy that i know very well still keep up with tammy and uh, she said this particular person that was there came to basically confess and tell Gary's mother what happened. And he said, hey, you know who? Because Gary Mathias's mother knew who the town bully was well. Right, right. I could just yeah. say they knew this guy. He wasn't some unknown a drifter. They knew the guy he was local. Yeah. And they did know that he knew Gary well. And he came and said, this is what happened. We threw Gary over the bridge. Um, you know, I just felt bad about it. So I wanted to tell you what happened. The other guys just, we ran them up the mountain and this kind of thing. And then the, uh, it was either the next day or soon thereafter, they found this gentleman OD'd on a heroin overdose at a, at a house at a party somewhere in Yuba city. And the guy was known to never, ever take injectable drugs. He was kind of a, um, you know, he was a drinker and he did some drugs, like maybe he smoked weed or whatever, but he was not ever known to take any hard drugs heroin stuff like that yeah, he was yeah, found yeah. A, dead of a heroin overdose so that yeah. was pretty suspicious and that was just one uh you know genesis of that story when it was told to gary my matthias's mother but that story pops up in other places it didn't even come from that source other right, people right, heard right. this too so yeah. uh, lots of people believed it including uh like i said the hewitts um 
Jack Hewitt Sr. heard a similar story. Jack Hewitt Sr. was very convinced that that was what happened. Jack Hewitt Sr. was involved in a lot of the, uh, he's uh, since deceased, but he was interviewed for the Yuba podcast by Mopac, and it's great mm-hmm. to hear him on that. And he got to at least tell a story. But he remembers seeing up in the mountains that, you know, four sets of tracks going up the mountain, not five. He remembers four. Uh, and he was a big believer in the in the town bully theory he, he, in uh, till his death, till his yeah. death. And he had heard some things through the through the grapevine working in Yuba City and knowing people that that that's what happened. The only problem with that theory is, is they find Gary's tennis shoes in the trailer. So if Gary's yeah. thrown over the Orville Bridge, how do his shoes get to the trailer? If yeah. you can solve that. You could make a really good case for Gary never making it to the trailer because, one, Gary would have started a fire. He absolutely yeah. knew how. He would have been freezing. Why would Gary Mathias not start a fire? Why would Gary Mathias not eat more food? Because he's yeah, and even cared if, about even stealing. If he, even if he left, like, let's say him and uh, Hewitt, who I believe is the other guy we believe made it to the yeah, trailer. Jackie. Let's say he le- yeah, he, let's say he leaves Hewitt. Um, and uh, and Ted at the trailer, and then he goes off to find help. That's sort of one of the prevailing theories. The idea, I guess the sticky point to me, like you said, how do the shoes wind up in the trailer if he was thrown off the bridge? If he was in the trailer, one would assume, like, look, if I'm here with Drew, my buddy, and, you know, another guy, uh, Brian, whatever, and I have to leave them in the trailer, like, I'm going to show every, I'm going to show them what to do, how to take care of themselves. You know what I mean? I'm going to be like, Mm -hmm. hey, here's a bunch of the food. Here's how you're going to open. Like, I would make sure they were set up before I left. But it would seem, based on the lack of a fire, based on the food, that there's no indication that that, uh, he set them up to survive in the cabin, which that adds another element where it's like, that's a, yeah, that's a great yeah, point. You know, mean. you would think he would. Like, he's going to leave. Like, hey, guys, here's 100 rations. Here's how you open them and set them up. That's a exactly. great point. Yeah. So, to me, that that aspect of it, like, it's very confounding. And then, yeah, you, it does make you wonder. I think it's been kicked around the idea. Well, okay, well, maybe they threw Gary off the bridge in the ensuing fight. The shoes fell off. And, you know, yeah. when the guys were or, 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 in the or car, they scrambled and grab the shoes and put them in the or he took his shoes off on the ride home and one of the boys just in their own mind and that's the way they would think is maybe you know gary will reappear you know not really understanding he's never coming back and they would think like that i mean you know in one case of ted weir his house caught on fire one day and uh his two brothers tried to wake him up and said hey the house is burning you got to get out and he said no i can't i got to go to work you know i can't go i can't leave the house i gotta get ready to go to my job they're like ted you're gonna die the house is burning so uh, the way they thought, and they're very caring. One of them, they could have picked up the shoes. Uh, you know, they could have been in the car. And one yeah. of them just picked them up and made that crazy trek up the mountain holding Gary's shoes. Maybe yeah, exactly. Gary's family misidentified the shoes. I don't think they would, but it, it makes you wonder because I'm telling you that story of the town bully. Yeah. And I know who the town bully is. He's still alive. Uh, he's just a bad guy. You know, I think he's yeah, like, we don't turned want his him. life around. But, after, but all of yeah, but I've seen his, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen Show, his prison record. My ass, yeah. Yeah, he's an ex-Vietnam vet. He'd spent a lot of time in prison, got, got, you know, got his ass beaten in prison and probably deserved it. 
mm-hmm. you know, just a nasty guy, definitely capable of doing something like that. But you, you know, but then you have the, the reasons why. Well, why would if he if his beef was with Gary Mathias, why would he just wait till he was not around his friends? Who knows? Maybe he was drunk. Yeah, and, who, yeah, exactly. You know, there's a million yeah. reasons. But if you can explain the shoes, you can build a good argument for for Gary never yeah. making it to the trailer. You really can yeah. because one, they never found Gary Mathias to this day. So right. the you know the bridge makes a good point because they never find him. I think his sister told me they did hire divers at one point. Of course, they found nothing. This is a deep, deep uh, water uh, in Oroville over the you know Oroville Quincy Bridge. Very deep. Right. I don't think they would have ever found him. They could have waded him down. But you know, there's a lot of things you could point to that, that would say that Gary, like you said, he w- didn't set him up. He would have started a fire. He would have definitely eaten more on his own because he wouldn't have cared if it was stealing or not. Guys starving to right. death. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, and then yeah. you know, there's now we started thinking more that 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 Jackie Hewitt was not as bad as people make him, you know, make him out to be. Like you were saying in the beginning, all of them got overblown about how bad their disabilities were. Jackie right. Hewitt rode a little motorcycle that you had to switch gears on, so he yes. wasn't that bad. He, had, he they had a little bit of property, and he'd go ripping up and down on his motorcycle in it. I mean, you knew how to. You know, use a clutch, and and that's not you know if you were that yeah you had motor retarded, skills. I know, yeah, I know you oh, can't yeah. ride a motorcycle that has gears. Yeah. You know, this wasn't like a little bitty kitty toy where it had one speed. It right, had exactly. gears on it. He knew how exactly. to ride it. I mean, he wasn't as bad as they make him out to be. Um, he absolutely could have taken care of Ted to some extent. Right. And well, another thing to consider like, is yeah, go ahead. Is go ahead. is Gary Mathias's schizophrenia now? The way it it works with these kind of drugs for schizophrenia and other like mental illnesses they they take time to build up in your bloodstream so gary's going to be pretty stable maybe for a week or so maybe getting into a two weeks or when he gets to the two week mark and he's not on his medicine it's really his mental state's going to degrade quickly Mm -hmm. uh the further he gets away from not taking this medicine so if you if people surmise that gary was there till you know uh maybe six seven weeks he's already going to be into the really whacked out mode He's right. not going to be thinking straight enough to take Ted's shoes. He's just going to haul ass at his bare feet, you yeah, know. Exactly. And Gary's a hardcore dude, so uh, you can't yeah, throw away. Yeah, if he stayed there for six weeks, he would have he would have he would have been up. he would have been out of his mind you know, in six maybe. weeks. Right, right. Not, what I'm saying, no medicine like in six it, weeks. You know, he's gone nuts. By the time you're there six weeks, he when he was stable, he already would have had sort of a routine, a setup of the cabin. We would have seen it more lived in. Which yeah, more lived in doesn't seem to be order, the case you know, food, more you, food. Right, yeah, you right. just go get all the sea rations. You would go to where they were in that store, so they could bring them all into the trailer. You know, as many exactly. as you could, and there wasn't now, the that other, many consumed. The other sort of the, the last theory we've kind of gone over the prosaic explanation that people use uh, or, or or lean on. We've gone over sort of the various Gary centric theories, uh, the town bully theory, and and the last one centers around that surly little bastard, uh, Joe Shones. Um, yes. And I mean, we kind of already talked a little bit about the possibility that, uh, I mean, that, that he had somehow something to do with this. It's, it seems, yeah, it's confounding in a way because he seemed, he doesn't seem like, I mean, I don't certainly don't know him very well, but from what I've read of, of his character and everything like that, he certainly didn't seem like someone who would be involved in it. Like, uh, as we were talking about, maybe he wanted to pull off, like, that school bus thing. But it's like, he sounds kind of like a fucking lazy asshole. Like, why would he 
That's an elaborate plot, if you will. Like he didn't. Yeah, it's pretty he elaborate. He certainly didn't try and he certainly didn't it's contact anybody and say, "I have these it's four true. guys kidnapped in a secret place in in the mountains," or now you got to pay up or anything. It was like, yeah. So that maybe, statement maybe, you mentioned earlier, I should have done this two years ago. It just blows my mind because it's like it blows my mind. He he made about? that. It's documented. It's in the police files. When you read the police files, you can see that many of them were. Uh, Highly, highly suspicious of Shone's right. uh, involvement for a lot of reasons because his story well, he put didn't pan at the out. Scene of the crime. Put himself at the scene. He never, as far as we know, uh, tried to collect on the insurance money. But then you wonder why would he come forward at all? Right, um, right. Is one thing I get asked. I'm like, man, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, no one he could get caught if he was involved. Why would you come forward at all? You just kind of hope. Shit. Hopefully they're all dead. Maybe yeah, he was you put yourself on the find Gary. That, yeah, maybe yeah. he thought Gary was going to uh, turn up. Uh, you know, yeah. if he, but, but and 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 ID him. I I don't know. We still don't know the reason. You know, maybe he just wanted attention. But we do know that he was up there. That's for sure. He was up there, and he had no reason to be up there. Even drunk, he had no reason to be up there that yeah. night. It would have just been a strange encounter. And uh, I can tell you, um, Joe Schoen's son was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Convicted. I'll, I'll say it. I can't. You know, it's not slander if it's true. He was convicted for kidnapping, oh, kidnapping. Wow. From what I know, adults. So that theory doesn't seem too weird when you know that. Like it was That's under strange. strange. Not too. And, you know, I mean, this was just months later after they found all the bodies that he gets in trouble for kidnapping adults. The son. Shown son. How old was yeah. the son? I, mean, I don't know if that's ever been said on any podcast or TV or wow. uh, or show. But well, there you that's go. True. That's why. Yes. Yeah, that's why we had. And to that's not, hey, it's just true. It. It's a fact. It's a fact. I've seen the the records. It's I'm not saying something that isn't true. It's true. But his son was like of like like of age enough to. Oh yeah, his son so was like his age. The daughter was younger. The daughter the daughter was 18 at the time, but the son was in his early wow. 20s. He's still alive. Uh, but I'm just that's saying the truth. Wild. He he was arrested for kidnapping. And, for, so, and for, no, I'm not, from what I know, it wasn't children. So yeah. I don't know if that was a ransom deal a or weird. That's weird detail that I've never. That's heard. Yeah. true. That's and his wild. son primarily lived in Southern California, and obviously this is Northern California. But uh, but he did come up there and visit a lot. So was it a plan with his father? I don't know. The guy weird. ain't talking, and he ain't gonna talk to me. But yeah, yeah his yeah. record's his record. I'm just saying it's true. I'm not slandering the guy because what I'm saying is true. I'm not saying it, you know, making it up. It's fact. Right. Uh, and that makes me wonder, you know, when you put That's that together, certainly... we should have done that two years ago. But what are you, you know, because there was no, no one ever tried to get a ransom. And then like, you know, I said, there were, you know, there's some money out there and they raised it for a while, but these weren't wealth, you know, and they didn't come from wealthy yeah, yeah. families. This wasn't Patty Hearst by any means. Right. right uh, it's right. just strange that Shones is up there. It's strange that Shones lied. We know he's been irresponsible with a firearm because his neighbor who was, uh, Tom McGeary was living with his cousin at the time next door to Joe Shones, and he remembered a time that Shones came out shooting a, a rifle, not a shotgun, it was a rifle, just indiscriminately on his property, and like didn't miss some of his cousin's young children at the time by much. He wasn't like trying to target them, but he was just shooting like a wild maniac, and he would call the local police, and they all know they all knew Shones, and they always just kind of gave him a slap on the wrist. Like Shones yeah, seemed yeah, to have yeah. some kind of, he seemed to have some kind of relationship with a lot of law enforcement for whatever reason and they seem to give him very favorable treatment which now, is another wrench in this case yeah well there's two additional interesting details uh that that i have here in my notes that i wanted to mention now 
Uh, and and you said you now since I we talked like a year ago, uh, the police files have come out. Uh, or uh, uh, mm-hmm. how how well how big like how I would first of all I would love to look at these just for my own. Uh, I'll send you a link. Yeah, send me a link to that to the files. I would love to read, to read these. Is it in? I don't remember where I heard this. I think it was on the podcast. It may have been in your book. Shell casings. There were shell casings found, and I'm wondering if that was in the police report, if that, if we have any confirmation of that, or if that was just kind of scuttlebutt among the families. I think it was scuttlebutt. Scene. Okay, so we have no. I don't know. Certain... I don't know. I don't. I don't think that ever made it into the police files, where there were okay. shell casings found uh, near the Montego, where the Montego was towed away. There were shell casings found. Yes. But that could have, you know, this is up in the middle of the right, right, of like, you know, people living off the grid. You know, I kind of, kind of built that story up in the book, or, yeah, or she yeah. did, which is great. You know, when they're trying to go hunt for their families, when uh, Jack Madruga's niece is going to look for him, and there's all these guys with dogs and shotguns and growing weed. You know, back then off the grid, and they didn't want anybody interlooping around, and they thought the boys were maybe held captive in a house. Uh, which they obviously weren't. They found them deceased, which is, which is yeah, terrible. Yeah. But it just tells you the kind of area that that was going on up there. You know, this is just too many things that are strange about it. But um, and the other, you know, well, yeah, well, he, I kind of closed out my presentation with folks was was the question sort of can this case ever be solved? And we're going to get into that in a minute. But it's interesting when you think about it. Just the in a way, these guys are victims of multiple circumstances. And one aspect of it, in a way, is, too, we're talking 1978. Like, if this happened in 2023, uh, you would hope, you know, with a competent police force, that they would swoop in. They'd be, like, getting DNA and shit. We'd have a lot more knowledge of, like, who was in that cabin over the last and two months, don't. three months. Like, they don't have any of that information because they didn't have those kind of forensics back then. But, like, you almost wish they did because we would have a lot more answers. Now, the question I have for you is it came out last year in the podcast, and I believe you're the one that tipped me off to this, and then I went and listened to the podcast, that in October of 2020, this was sort of my big boom at the end of the presentation, and hopefully it rocks the people listening tonight. Um, October of 2020. Now, we're talking three years ago, folks. We're talking uh, 42 years or so after the event. A memo is added to the Yuba County police file indicating that Gary Mathias died of foul play, and he is a missing person homicide yep. case. Missing um, person homicide. Yeah. Consider so it we, a homicide. That was a bombshell. More about this. It's a huge bombshell. It's a it's bombshell. A and, bombshell. And, and, and congratulations to uh, Shannon McGarvey and her team at Mopac Audio that uh, that found all that. I mean, because that was originally going to be a, a film documentary. From their um, from their film division, Megalomedia, and it wound up being, uh, you know, COVID got involved and things got screwed up. So they, right, uh, their right. video division wound up giving it over to their podcast division, uh, and then they uh, did even more work with Shannon and her team over there and did a fantastic job at that. That was the big bombshell uh, that 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 memo was added to the police files, and we don't know if that was done to keep the case open because it's involving a potential homicide or right. if they found out more and there was apparently the confession from the town bully had told somebody that he did it, but it was never recorded and they don't know how, you know, how much to verify yeah. that, you know, then the, the yeah. podcast, they have that scene in the church, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The town bully, which is interesting. Well, uh, you the town bully's uh, still alive, but yeah, 
became a preacher or something after he got out of prison. He became a preacher, and and what's odd is about that. I speak about it in my my book, which is really strange. But uh, Jack Madruga's sister uh, had had really dedicated a big part of her life to figure out who killed her brother. She obviously uh, yeah. believed this was a homicide. It was foul play, not just some retarded guys that couldn't turn car around trust me they knew how to car turn the car around right, by the way right, right. And, and if you go up this road there's a million and places I just, to turn I, around i just want to jump in here drew i just because i don't want you to catch heat on this this is how these guys were portrayed in the media um, when this all went down so uh you know that's got a, lost. kind of a verboten word and i understand but i i see why you use it uh to sort of take people into the time of yeah the case and this is how this That's was how they were perceived. This is how, yeah, they were perceived. This is how they were portrayed in the media. Yeah, so, yeah you see um, the term used yeah. in the articles. Some would say semi, Absolutely, some yeah. would say the word. Yeah, and, yeah, Because yeah, they just yeah. didn't have another word. I remember that. I'm 54. I remember them, you, you know, mm-hmm. you know, using yeah. that when I was but like in I said, you know, I, I just kind of want, you know, because uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a very uh, prickly, prickly subject. It's a prickly and subject, yeah, because it, that was just so. un- yeah. it was unfortunately part of the time, but it was, but, but, uh, you know them. You know, actually, this is true, and this is really strange, and it's something I, I could never really understand. And uh, there's a guy known as Sean Kale Williams. It's from Yuba City. He's got a lot of interest in this case. He's done some work on it. Uh, he was doing a smaller documentary on it. And Sean's a younger guy, but he but he knows the area and he knows a lot of the yeah. victims' families. Being from Yuba City, he played football at Yuba City High School, like uh, Gary did, and uh, or actually Gary played at Marysville High. Marys. They're mostly them from really from Marysville, which is right outside of Yuba City. And, um, but anyway, Sean's a local, he said, and, and the people he talked to, there was actually this, uh, you know, they, they were just really looked down on for some reason, if you were disabled, like these boys were, they yeah, really yeah. just kind of found on you for whatever reason. It was just right. kind of strange. Like now they would kind of like, like you and, and helping hand kind of thing. But a lot of people yeah, just like, yeah. you know, you're just like a second class citizen. Cause there's something wrong with outcast. you or you're slow. They were yeah. Outcast. They were outcasts yeah. and they, they really looked at them kind of with this disdain right, right. which so really get, never made sense to me because they were sweet you know they were called the boys yeah, yeah you would think yeah the term of endearment like, you know so that was yeah. really unfair but that's something that that sean kind of uncovered and, and said there was this you know the, this animosity towards them just for being the way they were which is just really cruel and weird right and it, right and it, and it, and it, it just probably didn't make yeah explain uh, maybe what one might perceived to be a lackluster police investigation where they were like, well, let's just, we're going to write it off because these guys, um, you know, these guys were hapless and they made a mistake. Now I interrupted you. You're talking about Jackie Madruga's sister. Yeah. Wanna, so I was talking about Jackie Madruga's sister. She doesn't Madruga's believe sister. that this was a, yeah, she's not a, a believer in the prosaic theory for lack of a better term. She's a believer in foul play. She went around interviewing people. She kept dubious notes on a little notepad in her purse. And she starts this, uh, journey trying to figure out what happened to her brother ever since it happened, you know, ever since they found the remains uh, of, of her brother in 1978. It's tragic, you know, when they had to tell Jack Madruga's mother, you know, who wanted to see him, they're like, you know, they had to tell his mom, there's nothing to see. It's a right. sack of bones. You know, there's nothing left of him. I mean, it's devastating. You know, and she died not too long after that. Uh, but literally a broken heart, according to her uh, uh her um, grand, our, our grandson, who I know yeah. pretty well, George Madruga, who was Jack's nephew, uh, who told me all that. She literally, you know, she had some health problems, but he he literally said she died of a broken heart. There's nothing to see. Just 
devastating and uh, when all that happened. Oh, yeah. But I his can sister only Janet being, being haunted by the questions. If it's your family member, I mean, we're we're yeah. obsessed here with the mysteries of this. I can only, I can't fathom what that would be. Can't like fathom the 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 law the the yeah, tremendous loss and no and getting no answers whatsoever. So right. his sister goes out looking. You know, Janet is his sister looking for answers, interviewing people. And some point she, at some point she runs across the, this, uh, someone saying, well, it was this preacher. Well, town bully later becomes a preacher. So she's uh, finding this out and she gets a name of a person from somebody like, Hey, this guy's involved. You know, we know he's involved. And she kind of tries to verify this somehow and write all her notes in her notebook. And she confronts this person uh, and, and, and just says, Hey, I want to talk to you, you know, about, some things that may have happened that night. Somehow she convinces him to meet her at a at a local bar. Yeah. And they go in there and she brings a gun with her, planning to kill him right point blank for the best of her brother. She's that driven by set upset about what happened to her brother and she yeah. wants justice. And um she, you know, something something came over and says, I can't, you know, I can't kill a guy here in cold blood. You know, right. some reality kicked in, but she still told him, Hey, I know what you did. I heard that it was you. He doesn't really deny it, of course, and she just winds up basically leaving. And um, so I asked her niece, which is also Jack Madruga's niece, that, that I got to talk to for a long, long time. Yeah. And um, I said, did she ever give you a name, you know, like who it was? And, of course, I know the name of the town bully, and yeah. this name was not the name of the town bully. And so I was like, yeah, wow. what are you talking about? I go, it has to be the town bully. You know, everything lines up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, turns out that this guy – did know the town bully, maybe ran around with him, and from what I know, was not as equally as nasty, but not far away, knew him pretty well. So somehow she got her wires crossed. This guy was never a preacher. He was in construction. Yeah, okay. Um, I think he's still alive, too, but he could have been just somebody else involved in the gang. But the, right, that's, how right. relevant the, that's how relevant the rumors were. And know, one aspect, I think, involved. that we can't rule out, right, is this guy, the town bully, he clearly has a fucking reputation for big time a bully. So it's like big time he, fear. He, if these rumors are going around, he's he know. Let's say he didn't have anything to do with this, right? He knows he had nothing to do with it. He knows he cannot be like that. That uh, so he, he's perfectly yeah. fine with the rumors going around because that just adds to the mystique, the the yes. ominous mystique surrounding he's him. Never, he he's never he's never denied it to my knowledge. Right. So we can't necessarily rule it out that he may just get off on the fact that people think that he fucking did this when he, he had might. nothing to do with it. So we, I mean, we can't even though he's now a man out. of God or so he's right. or so he's claims he's right. never come right. out and said, I had nothing to do with this. There's now, has no, anybody, like, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't recommend it. Someone with, with uh greater testicular fortitude than I, has anyone ever confronted this guy like either in private and then live to tell about it or like, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, your old 60 minute style run up to him with the camera and be like, look, dude, everybody thinks you did this. And you know, say, man. say something, say, are you worried? You know, you're a man of God. Come to Jesus. Did you have anything to do with this or did you let the story, you know, yeah. fire away? Has anyone actually contacted this guy to be like, hey, everybody thinks you're responsible for this, dude. So what's the deal? Yeah. You should kill the rumors. 
to my knowledge, no one's ever confronted him with, hey, did did you throw Gary over the bridge? Right. Uh, Tony Doug Wright did contact the individual. Um, mm-hmm. My friend Tony who's writing that book. Uh, did contact him. He didn't, Tony did, from my recollection of Tony telling me about the call, it's been a while now, but Tony never came out and point blank said, did you have anything to do with it? Right, uh, right. You know, because the guy immediately started doing his evasiveness and, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and there was another reason to call him because he knew he wasn't being called uh, just because he, he was uh, connected to it because he did know Gary Mathias well. Yeah, yeah. So that was the guise of calling him. Hey, we knew. Yeah, yeah, Gary. yeah. That was the premise for why, he you know, him. Yeah. And, I, and here's a hint. He, at the time, he was a relative of Gary Mathias. So I don't want to give anything yeah. away there. So there was a reason to couldn't make that connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he had been interviewed in the case before the town bully had, but not under the aspect of, Hey, you're the one that actually caused this, but under the fact yeah. that we knew that you knew Gary Mathias. Not so, just that. uh, go ahead, go ahead. The only, that's the only time of anyone that I know that called him about the case, but did not come right out and say, Hey, did you throw Gary over the bridge, dude? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. He doesn't want to, uh, that, uh, if that was me to, to deny it. Want to, yeah, I'd be like, nah, dude, I had nothing to do with that. Yeah, I would say I got nothing. You know, they got had to have heard it before. Absolutely, they had to have heard it. Um, So now you said Jack, Jackie Madruga's family, they're kind of of the of the uh, bully theory. Is that kind of where would you say the other families, um, you know, fall? Because you you're in a really unique position because so many people have heard about this case and read about this case, but you've actually spoken to. The family members, um, four of them. Know, yeah, uh, four sets of, of them. Yeah, no. there was one who's the. Uh, I believe it's Bill Sterling. Who's Sterling Sterling's, Sterling's twin sisters are still out there, and they do. They will not discuss it. I uh, got in touch with one of them on a on a Facebook forum, mm-hmm. and uh, she knew what I was talking about. She and she got pretty angry, you know, like almost trying yeah. to shame me for even asking. So it was like. That's off limits, I you know, like but it's we do bad. not yeah. discuss it. Yeah. And I never tried again. And uh, I think other people like Tony Wrighty knows they don't talk, but they're still out okay. there. But they so we can, we they can refuse to the, talk. But all the other families are, are there. All the other all the other four families are there. Um, I got to know the Hewitts a lot better after the fact because they had already kind of uh, had a thing with, with, with the uh, the Yuba podcast with Mopac. So they didn't yeah. want to share a whole lot. But, but now that I know them really well. And I'm one of the few people they trust to tell the story and get it right about Jackie, uh, yeah. mainly being his brother, uh, Tom, and his, his sister-in-law, uh, Claudia Hewitt. Uh, super nice people, and they and they remember what what um, that that Jack Senior said about it. Jack Senior, big believer in the in the town bully theory. I yeah. know Gary Mathias' sister Tammy. Tammy, uh, although knowing the story that was told to her mother, Tammy, I think it's a belief that Gary did make it to the trailer. Uh, she thought she found some uh, handwritten notes that like these little, uh, you know, these positive affirmation notes that Gary would write to himself. Like yeah, that yeah. he was told to by a psychiatrist saying, oh, you're, you know, you're going to make it. You're doing good. These kind of things. Yeah, uh, yeah, she yeah. said she found some of those in the trailer. So um, that's an interesting maybe guy. the boys had him or maybe he did make it. I, I, I still don't know. It's it's tough yeah, to give that's... up on the town bully theory because it's never changed. It's so prevail pervasive. But. But uh, Gary Mathias' sister, I think she believes that he made it to the trailer and just uh, went out for help and got too far away yeah. and perished in, you know, of hypothermia. Now they've had all these wildfires and right, that he's right. probably unfortunately gone. So that's kind yeah. of uh, 
she's kind of leaning towards that, but she doesn't either rule out the town town bully theory either because she hates the town bully, (laughs) hates him. Yeah, preacher, my ass to her, you know, is what she says. Yeah, 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 I don't like this guy. He knows I don't like him. I'll never like him. Uh, and he knows that, and and she's right. called him out in public, like, "Hey, I know, you know, like you're a bad yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah. If you did it or not, I hate you." Kind of thing. Really right, doesn't right. like the town bully, so that's kind of uh, kind of her deal. Of course, the Sterlings don't talk. Uh, Ted, Ted Weir's family, Ted Ted's family, which was uh, Ted had two brothers and a sister. His sister never says anything. His uh, his two brothers don't talk about it a whole lot. His um, his nephew, which is Dallas Weir Jr., super nice guy, and I've gotten to know him. He 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 will discuss the case, and I think early on the Weirs were big believers that Gary Mathias was involved because Gary's the guy that, you know had a bad reputation back in the day. So they were kind of leaning towards Gary Mathias. I think they've kind of gotten off of that now, yeah. And they're kind of open to everything, but they I, they're not really hard and fast. Even uh, Dallas Jr. on um, on what happened. You know, so yeah. uh, he was for sure heavy town bully theories. Uh, you know, the, they all believe foul play. They all yeah, believe yeah, yeah, yeah. some form That's of foul kinda, play. Yeah, kind of what I was. Yeah, at, they dude. they yeah. think this isn't just a bunch of dummies running up the hit, up up a mountain right, of three right, six foot right. snowdrifts. They knew how to turn the car around. There was plenty of plenty of places to turn that car around. You got to go around a long bridge over to Oroville. Um, you know yeah. you're lost at that point. Exactly. You don't take exactly. a long bridge to go to Chico or back. So they right, knew at right. that point they're very lost, but they keep going further right. and further. They pass the mountain house. Why wouldn't they stop at the mountain house? Exactly. You know? Yes. Why There's when they were right up there, there they passed the mountain house on the way building. up. Big building. Yes, they passed the mountain house on the way up. They keep we saying, going. Why don't you turn like if you if you're gonna flee you from the car, around there easily? Why don't you run down because you know there's the mountain house down there. So it's a they very, did not very stop. They kept on trudging along up that road. It under duress really, so yeah you know then you're left with, with paranormal you know oh that's, boy that's, yeah that's the other one the paranormal I suppose stuff people here. have put that forward right some kind of ufo oh yeah uh, ufos uh ufos seen in the area uh every weird theory you've heard of uh there was some kind of a crack marine outfit up there doing some kind of exercises might have had something to do with it uh ufos all kind of weird stuff you know, maybe a ufo weird, let them yeah, up yeah. there so yeah, many maybe crazy they saw a UFO and they followed it, and they were trying to like they were so spellbound by the UFO that they drove up yeah. the hill, and then then the UFO came down to the car and they freaked out and ran away. Freaked I mean, out and ran, yeah. The, I mean, those are on know, the table. Not outside the realm of possibility, I suppose. The, the Freemasons are being involved. There was one of them connected oh, to the, one of the Freemasons out there, and they had some secret deal going, uh, you know, Thanks. to do something to these boys or ritualistic stuff or whatever. I mean, I. I've heard them all. I've heard them all. I mean, and, and, and everything's still on the table, unfortunately. Uh, all I know is something intervened with that car after it leaves Bear Market. I don't think a fight happened there because I think uh, Davis would have seen it. But I think somehow another car intervenes with them on the way back and somehow gets them to start going in this other direction. Yeah. And they and either that's to the bridge and town bully happens or they just keep going through Oroville under some duress or maybe to help somebody. I heard one theory that they had someone he grabbed Gary and they were actually on a mission to go rescue Gary. I mean, I've heard them all, oh, uh, which would make sense because yeah. they would want to go save their friend. Like somehow they that's get separated from theory. Gary, Gary, yeah. they think Gary's up there or someone tells them that. And yeah. that's why they're on this mission to go get their, their friend. 
You know, like somebody takes yeah. Gary, like they intervene with him and right. they put right. Gary in their car and they basically said, you got to follow us now because we got your buddy and yeah, we're yeah, taking yeah. your buddy up here. So you better follow him if you want to get him back. And that was kind of like one way to get him to start trailing up this road. And yeah. then, then you have Joe Shones. Why is Joe Shones up there? He had no right. reason to be up there, even intoxicated. None whatsoever. Yeah. What did he mean by I should have done this two years ago? We don't know. Yeah. Um, the son's got a checkered past. Right. We know that. Uh, what what was the, the, the goal? Could the goal have been, and I've thrown this out before, could there have been people that really did not want them to play in that game the next day? Because people, I know it sounds crazy, but they would bet real money on these, these games, even though it was uh, Special really? Olympics. They would they would wager some pretty good amounts of money on it. And it could have been just some people that wanted them out of the way not playing in that game. Not necessarily well, intending to kill some, them, but just not to play. Wasn't there some weirdness with the coach, like not, show, not showing yes. up either? Yes. That's a weird, weird aspect. The of coach the is so kind of right. a new one into the whole fold. The coach um, did not show up at the meeting rendezvous place I, and he, right. he never winds up going to the game. I think another coach took over, you know, they had more than they had another coach they actually had two different teams from gateway. So I think they had yeah. fill in players and from whatever call their team actually still won. So, oh. um, so we don't know the coach, uh, this, the, the theory that got thrown on out online about the coach was that he was married at the time and he was um, dating somebody else. And he happened to be at the game at Chico and the boy saw him and he thought the boys would squeal on him because he was out with the girlfriend. And then he yeah. decides to do something to get rid of the boys. You know, I've had people, you know, criticize That's kind me of one of those crazy... that up. No way, man. Nah, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't blame you for bringing it up, but yeah, as a true crime. Yeah. I think it, hey, it's like, you kinda have to we rest. don't have it's any like, other answers. It's like, wait a minute. So instead of your wife catching you fooling around, you're going to murder five people. Like now you're, yeah, dude, you're it's just, pretty far fetched. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I but it is odd that he didn't show up. Do all the dumb shit to cover up, like they do. Like, why don't you just get a divorce, dude? Why'd you kill your whole family? That's yeah, kind of, he, a he, bit extreme the, reaction, bro. Like, yeah, dude, he didn't show up. He was questioned by police, and and the police thought he was pretty evasive. You know, the coach was weird. He's, he he was he was evasive and questioning. Uh, they thought that was odd. He said a lot of bad things about Gary Mathias. I can't remember what they were, but they were really, you know, some really Threw harsh criticisms. Yeah, I can't, I cannot remember what they were, but it was just some really critical stuff about Gary and maybe one wow. of the other ones, like, oh, they're lazy, they sucked anyway, or just some really weird comments to weird. make when they're missing, you know. Yeah. And these guys are gone anyway. Why do you have to take a shot at them? And he did. Yeah, that's on, and you would think there Strange. would be some camaraderie from the coach. I mean, yeah, kind of a, but no, kind he was kind of all of Matthias was an asshole and, and he was yeah. a jerk. And, yeah, not, he, he, no. he badmouthed him. After he's gone, he's probably dead up in the mountains, and the dude's trashing (laughs) him. Really a strange thing. Wow. Um, That's very And then we had the sighting. We had a sighting of Gary Mathias. Well, there was multiple sightings of Gary Mathias after the bodies were found. All around Yuba City, people saw him at Montgomery Ward. People saw him over in this place. One of the sisters of the boys saw him. Yes, one of the the, the niece. Jack Madruga's niece saw him and fully believes it. It, her parents' bar called La Casa Blanca that was uh, not far out of Yuba City. It was in another town, but kind of the same general area where this bar was. And she had gone to the back to help get some supplies or whatever and came back up and saw Gary Matthias at the bar. 
and she's like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, yeah. Gary, you know, it's, I, this, this is crazy. And she went and got her mother who was running the bar. I think they actually, her parents lived behind it where this place was. And she said, mom, there's got to come up here right now. Freaking Gary Mathias. And she knew Gary well enough that she could spot him anywhere, according to her. And, yeah. um, uh, called the police, you know, uh, once she went to go get her mother, Gary was gone. I mean, like maybe he might eye contact and, and got noticed right, right, right. And, and, and left. So she went to the police saying she saw him on the date it was. And this was like, I think three or four months after the bodies were found in June, early June. So this is, you know, get September or so yeah, of 78. Yeah. And the police took her in and took it seriously. And she, and, and according to her, they showed her pictures of uh, multiple pictures of Gary Mathias, but they were doctored up. Like you didn't have Photoshop back then, but they did some ways of making yeah. the pictures look different. Maybe put like, like a beard on him or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is weird. I never heard of that before. I figured they'd just give you some show like six guys that kind of look alike and one being exactly. Gary, like point out Gary. But whatever she did, she passed that test, which I thought was interesting. But that's how far she bought it. And, and I, you know, wow. she was confident that was Gary Mathias at that bar. Yeah. What a strange Never his backed off. So many, so many strange side elements to it. Like this thing we just talked about with the coach, with the, the sight, crazy bully. Joe Shones, the bully. There's so many weird aspects of this case. It really yeah, the uh, food, blows my the, mind. The, the yeah. All the, no all the situations at the cabin. Yeah. The there's shoot, so many. Bro, the, bro, yeah, every time you think you can put a piece this together, say, okay, we're going to go with the town bully theory because that's so solid. And right. then the shoes hit you in the face. Like, well, okay, we got to get around the shoe deal. Yeah. And yeah. every time you think you could plot a, a, a scenario, it blows up on you. You're just like, yeah. it's this big Jenga puzzle, you know? You're going to yeah, this yeah. last part goes on and it just crumbles because, no, <laughs> there that is. It's but Gary Mathias, Gary Mathias was, uh, I mean, this guy was a survivor. He was a scrapper. He had uh, walked home from his grandmother's house in Portland, Oregon, all the way back to Yuba City. I think it's 800 miles. Oh, wow. On foot. On foot. Yeah. Like, no hitchhiking, at least according to him. He was, like, going through neighborhoods, bars, just eating cat food left out, just surviving, uh, and makes it all the way home to his stepfather and mother's house and knocks on the door. His uh, stepfather, Bob Klomp, opens the door, and it's Gary, and Gary has no idea who they are. He was just like an animal that knew where he lived. You know how wow. a, like a lost dog yeah, for years yeah, comes yeah, back. Yeah. It, that's that's how he was. He was wow. in a middle uh, place for a while, and he literally dug out through the plumbing like Shawshank Redemption. Wow! And escaped out of this mental facility and made it back home. I mean, this dude was a survivor. I mean, yeah. he was a scrappy. If anybody could have made it out of those woods, it was Gary Mathias all day yeah. long. Interesting. Yeah. So so who knows. Have you, are you kind of, I suppose you could probably break it down by percentages in a way, but I, would you say you lean most heavily on the preacher theory, the, uh, the town oh, preacher, or is it hard to really, it's you're not so quite hard. I'm a, yeah. I'm a Shones, I'm still a Shones guy. I, I, ah. I, Shones has something to do with this. I just can't shake him. Shones right. has something to do with this, but it's so, he's such an unreliable guy. You yeah. know, he's a town bullshit artist. You know, he's, he's a drunkard. It, it's right, just so right, hard right. to it's, to you know one thing they would say about Shones though when when he was in the hospital for a while and they were questioning him he would get really emotional you know he would start like crying he would be like oh, 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 you know like 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 just traumatized by this whole yeah. event 
And when the cops would really start questioning him hard, like, you know, kind of like if he got the sense that they were thinking he was involved in it, he would yeah. just shut them down. He'd shut them down. He'd be like, uh, uh, you know, he'd act like he had chest pains or, or I'm done oh, with you. Weird. Throw him out of the room. Yeah. If you if they pressed so him too strange. hard, he'd get rid of them yeah. immediately. Just like get yeah. out of the room or you're 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 causing me duress. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Chest My pains. heart's getting yeah. Nurse, yeah, yeah, yeah. nurse, get them out of here. Like when they pressed yeah, yeah. him, he did not like it. If they started pressing him on anything that he deemed as being accused, he'd shut him down. Weird. Big time. So well, yeah, he's Jones is a piece. So he just got to he's he's in he's he's in there. Yeah, he's definitely a piece of the puzzle. Now I guess the the sort of last question to sort of the wrap up the whole thing is like. Can we're talking forty five years now? Um, uh, was it seventy eight? Yeah, it's forty five. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. Because I'm seventy. You know, I was born seventy nine. I'm forty four. So yeah, it's forty five years. Took me that long to do the math on that one, folks. Um, can this? We're talking forty five years later. Do you think? Is there any fucking way you could ever will ever get this, this thing could ever be solved? I suppose. A deathbed confession with, with that can somehow be corroborated might be the only thing, or if they or if Gary Mathias's body is somehow found in the waters, even then people might say, well, you know, that doesn't really say prove everything. But but I mean, is there any element of this case, any aspect, any any way that this could possibly be solved, or are we looking at like a case that's probably just always going to be a mystery? I, uh, you know, probably always going to be a mystery, but I hold out hope. I hold out hope that maybe the town bully comes clean if it was him, or or, or at least maybe he knows what happened. Right. Uh, another guy, the the non preacher guy, <laughs> um, I think he's still alive. He might know something. Of course, uh, Joe Schoen's son is still alive. I think he's might have some answers. Yeah, um, yeah. I know he told Basketball his sister coach, not talk. Not, not, he told his old sister don't talk to anyone about this case ever again, uh, which uh, makes you wonder. He said don't don't talk to anyone about it ever again. Period. Well, it's really uh, remarkable. He's gone now, Joe Shones. It's like yeah, Joe his son's Shones, not though. He is forever in the history books. You know, he is forever like a key. That's the only fucking indelible mark this guy ever made on the world was being affiliated with this case so it's like uh you know if he if he didn't want people talking about it and he didn't want his family talking about it, it's like jokes on you dude because like that's all yeah. that's the first line of your obituary you know figuratively speaking joe shones that, that you were the guy on the mountain with the yuba five and no and some people think you were involved some people don't so yeah i mean yeah. like i said i don't know Short of some kind of deathbed confession, I don't see how, you know, anyone, I suppose someone dies and they find like some kind of something that was taken from the guys, how they would even know. I presume the police aren't even investigating this really anymore. It has to be a deathbed deal. Yeah. So it's a. Maybe Maybe the bully knows something because he's still alive. I know he had some bad health a while back. Um, he had some form of cancer. I don't know what it was, but nothing uh, totally fatal. Uh, yeah. From what I know, he's still alive. And well, you know, it's not hard to figure out who he is. But I, you know, protected. You know, anything alive, yeah, he's still yeah, alive. Yeah, we don't want any trouble. Uh, so, yeah. But once once he passes away, at least we can freely talk about him uh, and see if anybody else that knew him say, "Oh, I know that was the town bully." Shoot, here's what I know. And yeah, then, people, you know, that whole, whole note are... in the police file saying they did homicide. 
Yeah, there might be people who know him who are waiting for him to die who might be like, yeah, it was him. They could be, because I hear even at his older age, people fear him. Even now, people fear him. Yeah. So uh, I'm hoping something there. Uh, I don't know. I doubt Joe Schoen's son's ever going to say a word. I I don't know that he's involved. I honestly don't. I just know he's got a record. Uh Um, And, you know, I go back to Joe Schoen saying that I should have done this two years ago. And for some, there was such an odd statement that they remembered it. They remembered it word for word. They said, I should have done done what? You know? Yeah, that's very, very. I mean, the weird. dude's nothing but a town drunk. I mean, what went 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 to uh, I don't know get his get his uh, master's degree? Probably not. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, no, it's very. What weird. is he yeah. talking about? Because he hadn't actually. Just, it, it, the version of his story is that he went up to look at it. So it wasn't even like he was. It wasn't like he had his story was that he had done something extraordinary. It was like, dude, you drove up to look at those. That what do you mean doing this two years ago? You know, so yeah, yeah. Make what does any, that mean? Do done any what? Sense at all. Yeah, for him to have made that statement was just really weird. So, uh, you know, I, it was just weird times up in Yuba City. You had all Absolutely. kind of drugs and trafficking and and, and uh, a lot of guys in and out of jail, jail gangs, uh, rumors of, of people that were in jail. Another young boy attached to this case uh, was murdered and, you know, sexually assaulted yeah. and murdered. Oh, that, that could be tied to this. Um and who knows where it, who knows where it leads earlier. yeah 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 the drug overdose uh the other ones could never be found and one moved out of state wound up dying never talked about so what weird. happened it's yeah well, it's also I think, weird i think also there's an aspect of this uh sort of i think this happens a lot in true crime too in a way i think people do sinister shit they we do. know people we know people do sinister shit um <laughs> that that's a that's a that's a fucking undeniable fact um but i think uh, people do sinister shit thinking that it's kind of kind of fly under the radar you know like i'm thinking about that guy up in idaho that's killed the four college students yeah coburger Coburger, yeah i think that allegedly i think that he you know i think it's a scenario i think these scenarios happen more often than not when we're talking about a lot of these people suspects and people connected to the case in a way it's like I think maybe they don't think it's going to be, be that big a deal, you know, like the guy, mm-hmm. like the Gary, like the Gabby Petito case, the guy, you know, he murdered oh, yeah. his girlfriend up in the national park. He comes home. He's probably thinking to himself, it's just another missing person. It's not going to be a big deal. And then it becomes like this international sensation. Now, not this didn't necessarily happen at the time with the Yuba five people, but it was certainly a strange enough case five people are missing, you know, then four of them are dead. What's certainly it's not, it's like, 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 I think that anyone who might be like, well, no one's going to really care that much about this. It's like, no, people care. And people yeah. cared a lot. And they, there was an extensive search. It wasn't like, oh, you, you could search. chase these guys up the mountain and no one would go look for them. But I think that maybe when people do sinister shit, I think sometimes they think that, like no one's gonna that no one's gonna do anything about it. You get what I'm saying? It's kind of like I think that they think that maybe it's not going to be as big a deal as it turns out to be, and I that may impact some of these people who are like, well, I'm getting the fuck out of the state. Don't ever talk yeah. about this to anyone. All yeah, that, all that yeah. sort of like everybody shut down and shut up because yeah. this has turned into a fucking huge deal. You know that dumb huge thing deal. we did to those guys last yeah. weekend. 
Like well, they're looking. This is the fucking cops are everywhere, and they're yeah. looking, and everybody just get rid of that guy. Up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, that guy died of a heroin overdose. He was never known to take needle drugs, and he's dead quickly yeah. after spilling the beans to Gary's mother. Right. right, right. Uh, so and I what's weird very, about that whole theory is off of this case. Yeah. that that theory just didn't start with that story of one guy telling Gary's mother. That story was spread like at the time, and it's never varied. It's really varied none. It's been told over and over in that area. Yeah. And they, a lot of them just believe it because it's been told over and over. It's never really changed. Uh, if, if you can, if you can figure out how Gary's tennis shoes get in that trailer, that's Those probably shoes. your number one case. <laughs> I mean, just because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's other things you could point to that show that Gary didn't make it. Yeah. The food, the uh, the fire. Gary would have known how to do that. Gary would have on his medicine. Confounding. It's confounding, man. It really it's, is. Yeah. Really he would, he could have done it. Case. You know, maybe Gary gets there early and takes off early. You know, is another way. And then Jackie's taking care of Ted. And Ted and uh, yeah, Gary heads yeah. out early. But if Gary head out early, he took Ted's shoes, and then, you know, it would have had to have been within days. So that could kind of explain things. Maybe Gary took off within days and just right, got out right. into the elements and 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 passed away. So you know, got but again, far enough away. But again, we're going back to sort of the circumstances at the cabin. When again, it goes back to the unseen compelling force that put Seen them him on running the up that mountain something put them on that mountain so fleeing, fleeing so, in fear leaving yeah. behind a perfectly running car the window rolled down which you would have never done so jack jack is in duress he's not going to leave that car with that window down yeah. and it was found down never yeah. would have happened they it left that car in a hurry yeah. they're being threatened they're being chased they're they're yeah. fleeing up the mountain in street clothes freezing i mean they're yeah, running from impending wild. doom for their lives so uh yeah yeah it's something scared the hell out of those guys yeah something happened man there's no doubt i i, I hope there is a break one day maybe one of those guys it would be fantastic but who knows yeah why don't you one of those like guys said, crack have, or this isn't one of those genealogical dna cases where we're gonna no there's no dna they didn't, they didn't even you know they didn't like find that. any fingerprints they didn't find any extra fingerprints in the car they claim they fingerprinted it, but it's not real clear. There was multiple items in there. Uh, they found a gold yeah. watch that what didn't belong to Ted Weir that they found by his bedside. Didn't belong to any of the boys. Of uh, all his personal, he had a, a, a ring, one of his own rings that was they found, but yeah. they found a watch didn't belong to anybody. Weird stuff. Some people say uh, maybe the snowcat driver uh, had something to do with it or knew about it, or the guys that were on the motorcycles that found them people are some people are like man that was so off the beaten path but then again you get into these these um comments too that they should have found those trailers they should have right, known they right. were there they weren't that far away and they even asked the forest service trailer if they would help with their snowmobiles and all that and they refused uh we don't know why but there's still a lot it was a lot of criticism from the families why did you not find the trailer earlier where you could yeah. have saved at least one, if not three of them. And right, right, it right, wasn't right. that far. As the crow flies, it wasn't that far. But no one thought to go search those trailers, even though the snowcat had been up there the day before. You think yeah, they would have very, known that? That's a super strange aspect of the case, too. Yeah, the complete negligence of the search. Where yeah. it's like, look, totally there's, a building, there's a building like six the or structure, seven miles within the radius. Like, one would think, well, maybe they ended up there. Like, I, I can't understand Within a 10-mile radius, never... easy. Within a 10-mile yeah, radius. I how that never in nowhere, In the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You'd think you'd look right. at any structure, and they miss exactly. those trailers. Yeah. That's yeah. a – it's just uh, – it's egregious. It's 
it's it's it's a tragedy and it's 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 incompetent to the point to even understand how they miss those trailers. Right, exactly. Unless they just thought, surely these guys on foot are not going to make it this far. Yeah, I suppose, but yeah, that's big mistake. <laughs> that's, a, that's an understatement. Um, yeah. Well, I've had you here for two hours, man. I could talk more and more and more. Yeah, I, I love this case, man. I mean, it's it's just one of the best. It's one of the best that you know. It's still covered on YouTube a lot, but it's still not out in the mainstream. I think it's still yeah. really missing a good. Oh, this documentary. Is a, this is, yeah, this is a story that is crying out for a Netflix series. Uh, yeah, I yeah, mean, and I know that. Like yeah, I think they may have done so a short many, one. Yeah, this is better than some so many other ones that I've seen that are so are many like, better, like Mara Murray, yeah, which is good, but it doesn't have this all these compelling features. Yeah, you yeah. know, so it's yeah, shocking no one's really picked up and ran with it yet. Well, I mean, between the podcast, your book, and your friend's book that's coming out soon, there's definitely this. Momentum. There's Yuba, some momentum. Yuba County Five sort of renaissance, if you will. So let's yeah. just hope that that leads to more, um, you know, more awareness of the case. Because, like I said, it's really surprising. A lot of people they're vaguely familiar with it. Uh, you know, the but all American listeners after tonight are going to be very familiar with it. And and but it's a lot of people. You know, it's funny. I was saying this to somebody else the other day. It's like what always seems to spark people's memories. A couple people came up to me at the event in Nashville last year. They're like. I kind of remembered the case as soon as you mentioned the can opener. It was like that's when I remember. Oh, that rang a bell. People seem to get hung up on that can opener part yeah. of the story because um, it's just so weird. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a tremendous case. Um, I can't thank you enough, Drew, for really sitting down and digging into it with me here tonight. Um, I I have to absolutely put over this book, folks. Out of bounds. What happened to the Yuba County Five? Um, get it. We, we've, we've really, and believe it or not, we've just done two hours here. We've only scratched the surface of this case. It yeah, is lots it of is twists and turns, complex, lots of twists and turns, lots of, uh, riddles, uh, all throughout the whole story. And, um, you know, if you want to know more, get the book out of bounds. What happened to the Yuba County five? Uh, I, I I'm going to save getting into the other stuff with you for the next time I get you on, but all of America, which is definitely going to happen. Cause I cool, love man. this conversation. Looking forward to it. Um, but the other books for folks who want some more drew Hurst Beeson can check out, uh, sighting. I need glasses. So I'm like, look, <laughs> I, <have to. laughs> I was like, Oh shit. Uh, so I've been looking at the uh, us the whole time. Now I'm like, Oh, I got to read, um, Citing in on the Zodiac Killer, Unmasking America's Most Puzzling Unsolved Murders, uh, and Paratrooper of Fortune, the story of Ted B. Braden, Vietnam Commando, CIA operative, Congo mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper. And like I said, I'm going to get you back on the show because D.B. Yeah, Cooper— You had a Zodiac question, though, from you said I, earlier. Well, a Zodiac question I was going to ask you, at the risk of us getting too deep into it, um, and I think this was the Peacock. The, the theme of the Peacock special. My my subscription ran out and I just re-upped it. I'm, now I'll probably watch it. It's on. Through. If you have oxygen, it's running on oxygen now. Oh, <laughs> it's really? running on oh, oxygen. Nice. It's gonna <laughs> the oxygen. Oh, there you go, uh, yeah. True crime. It's on oxygen um, now. If you have that, which is. I think this may be the free. premise of the Zodiac thing. But what do you think of the theory that the Zodiac that it's all just like a, a made up newspaper sort of idea and that they were separate. Separate murders and and sort of a it was a it was a creation of the media, um, you know. It, I, I'm not doing the theory justice, quite frankly, but that that sort of you, I'm sure you're aware of the theory. I, I, 
I know it well because you know uh, it's it's a friend of mine's theory, Tom uh, Professor Thomas Henry Horn's theory. Uh, it's called the myth of the zodiac. He's had a book out right. on it for years and years, and it, and it, and it struck the attention of these producers that that okay, eventually so made it into the, the series. Special. Okay, yeah, the yeah. Peacock series. That's you know, and this was years in the making. He got me involved in it because he said, "Hey, do you know somebody with a contrasting theory that that uh, you know it doesn't uh, want to destroy yours at the same time?" You go, "Oh yeah, get through," you know, right? Uh, because I think some of it has some merit for sure. Because uh, like you, they say in the show. Uh, and, and Thomas says in his show, you cannot link any one of the four canonical Zodiac crimes to another by forensics whatsoever. There's no right. fingerprints from any crime that match each other. Ballistics from any crime don't match each other. They can't say this gun was used at two of the crimes. There's none of that. So that yeah. alone is going to breed a, a theory in an over 50-year-old classic unsolved case to have a, a theory out there. You know, it makes a lot of assumptions um, you know, but it has its place. And I've always said that that's probably why we always gotten along. And, you know, I have a different theory, but he supports my theory. Like I support his. So, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely don't mind being friends with people that, that don't agree with me on either who the Zodiac was or DB Cooper. And we still learn from each other. So it's all kind of cool. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily, I don't know what, uh, your friend's, perspective is but i always yeah i i think it's all important to keep an open mind once you have somebody who says they know the answer it's like okay well hold on dude you don't if you knew the answer it'd be case closed right so you, oh like, yeah yeah it'd be nobody like, knows the answer a lot like who, who db cooper was or who the zodiac killer was yeah because you like db cooper we say you got to be able to put them on the plane mm -hmm. uh it's getting harder and harder to try to do at this point. Right, right. Well, what do you, before I let you go, because this is very similar to the Zodiac, myth of the Zodiac theory, and I only heard this like recently. What do you think of the theory that there was no D.B. Cooper, that this was some kind of conspiracy nah, I know. It, it goes nowhere. Yeah, I mean, heard, heard like the this, flight crew right? was in on it. The yeah, flight crew was yeah, in on yeah, the theory. Yeah. 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 Like, and they yeah. split the money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, that just doesn't, That it never held up at all. That's really far-fetched. It's kind of hard uh, to believe because I don't know how they get off the plane with the money without. Yeah, they had FBI everywhere in Reno when the plane landed. Uh, there was a guy on there long gone. I mean, the biggest question in D.B. Cooper is for me is, how does the FBI lose eight cigarette butts? How do you lose eight cigarette butts that they know Cooper used? Now, you didn't have DNA back in 1971. We know that. But right, right. But if you ever apprehended it. Cooper and, and, and you brought him into court, you'd have that friends testify, oh, I know this guy smoked rally filter tips. That was right, his right. brand because that's what Cooper smoked. And, you know, the FBI does not lose evidence. They lost the cigarette butts. Yeah. Gone. Gone, destroyed. No one knows where they are. The those would solve the case. Oh today. yeah, with genetic they, they, genealogy, you would solve the case. They found that. a cigarette butt in a case up in uh, not far from where my friend's parents lived, and uh, from a cigarette. From it was a 1971 case. They got DNA off of a cigarette butt and found this bastard who lived in an apartment complex with this poor lady. Got in a fight with his wife. He was mad. Found this other woman living in the apartment complex, raped and killed her, and uh, they identified this guy. All these many years later, from one found cigarette butt, finally got DNA extracted from it. But that's yeah, a, eight of DB yeah, Coopers are gone. That's maddening. That's insane. Um, it's insane. It's it's you. We was yeah, yeah. had all eight. We had all eight butts. It it's it's done. He yeah. would have definitely left enough Suspicious. saliva on a cigarette butt to to probably get a, a full profile. Right, right, right. Well, anyway, on that note, 
again, we'll get in. We'll do some shows on DB Cooper and uh, Zodiac in the future for sure. But like I said, we're now we're over two hours. I cannot thank you enough, man. This is exactly what I needed uh, to kick off in all of America the rebirth, the revival. Yeah, man, it's an honor coming on the reboot. Yeah, man, honor coming on the reboot, brother. My pleasure talking to you, Drew Beeson Books. Com is where you're going to find more from Drew, DrewBeesonBooks.com. And like I said, I, I, I loved this conversation. It was so much fun. And I think, uh, you know, for anyone that I doubt that we could bring some top-notch, really wild, crazy shit for you uh, on the revival. Well, here you go, <laughs> folks. I hope you enjoyed it. And, and stay tuned for more uh, awesome stuff from Banal of America. Um, and thank you so much, Drew. I really did appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Tim. I had a lot of fun. There you have it, folks. That was Drew Hurst Beeson here on the premiere of Banal of America, The Revival. We will probably not be doing these voiceovers at the beginning and the end of the shows going forward. I just kind of wanted to do it here for the premiere episode of The Revival to kind of bring folks up to speed on what's going on with Banal of America. Of course, you want to check out BOA on social media, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. And, of course, as I highly recommended at the start of the program tonight, you want to get over to the Banal of America YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Banal of America, or just punch in Banal of America YouTube on your Google machine, and it'll pull up the thing. And if you're a YouTube person and you have an account and all that good stuff, subscribe. Then you'll get notifications for when we go live, because that's where we're going to be hosting uh, the live shows once uh, the BOA revival is really fully underway. And on that note, thanks again, everybody, for listening. It's great to be back. I'm really excited about what we have planned for you in the weeks and months ahead. And it's just it's going to be awesome. I'm really excited. So thank you so much for all your support over the years. Until next time, this is Tim and all thanking you for listening and signing off.